Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panel. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. What's up, everybody? This is Drew. Yo, yo, yo. Yiggity, yo. Yo, yo, yiggity, yo. What's going on? I don't know why I do that. I hate myself so much. <laughs> Um, anyways, today we have a special guest contributor. You've you've heard him on our show before. Uh, he's he was here with us when we did our review of Shang Chi uh, and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Our friend and uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Justin Legend. Legend. The legend. Huh? Yeah, it's like a mansion, a legend. <laughs> nice. Welcome, Thank you, Justin. Thanks, guys. Hey, hey. Really honored to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, tell us a little bit about yourselves in case there are any, you know, new listeners or, you know, there's just anyone who, uh, you know, wasn't too familiar with you. Just, uh, you know, let us know what you're about. I'm Justin. I uh, I don't really read comics, so I'm not sure why I'm on this podcast. But <laughs> um, You watch I, movies, though. I do watch. Yeah, I watch movies or I try to watch movies. You are a cinephile. Yes. Yes. Okay. There, there you... goes that word again. <laughs> um, but yeah. I also am part of uh, this organization called We Are Half the World, or WOW for short. And we're a multidisciplinary studio that specializes in like design and storytelling. And our mission really is to enable artists and filmmakers and musicians and stories of Asian, uh, storytellers of Asian descent to deliver loud diverse and nuanced representation so if you're interested in learning more look us up on instagram by searching for at w.a.h.w very good very good justin did you rehearse that or is that all off the cuff no i wrote it down actually oh Oh, that is smart yeah (laughs) (laughs) i wish i had thought of writing (laughs) i just show up to things i'm surprised i have a job but uh, yeah, it's appropriate that you're here because uh, today's episode is actually going to be one for one that is here to acknowledge uh, AAPI uh, Recognition Month, which is Asian American and Pacific Islander uh, heritage. And um, yeah, we we thought that in honor of the month, we would cover a you know we would cover another um asian american and or pacific islander uh creator who works in comics and uh we we thought we'd have you here in order to provide your delicious nuggets of input that's right yeah and today happy to (laughs) (laughs) and today we're going to be covering Adrian Tomine. He's uh, I'll, I'll shoot it to you, Drew. Like uh, you, you're better at the uh, the nuts and bolts of this stuff. But uh, you know, please tell us who the fine gentleman is. Okay, so today we are covering three stories by Adrian Tomina. He is a an Asian American comics creator who's also known for his illustrations in The New Yorker. We're not only covering three of his comics, but we're also covering a recent movie that was based on or inspired by these three stories. And that movie is Paris, 13th District. But uh, the three stories 
from Tomina that we're going to be discussing are Hawaiian Getaway, Amber Sweet, and Killing and Dying. These three stories can be found in two of his book collections. Hawaiian Getaway can be found in Summer Blonde, and the other two stories can be found in his collection simply titled Killing and Dying. So before we get too deep into the comics and the movie that adapts the comics, I'm curious about what your guys' general thoughts on his work is. Justin, you being our guest, feel free to feel free to go first, my my good man. Sure. Yeah, I really like Adrian Tomine. I think it was uh, Drew. I think you actually introduced me to um, his work. And is it pronounced Tomine or Tomine? I, I always thought it was Tomine. I want to get that right. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I think it's Tomina. Tomina. Oh. Okay. I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think uh, you introduced me to his work, and um, some of the things that I really appreciate about uh, Tomina's work was that uh, it was very um, observant of little details here and there uh, that are usually brushed aside or or looked over, and these sp- small details really does add a bit of uh, profundity to the stories and um, I really enjoy that and um, yeah curious to hear your perspectives mm-hmm. what about you Albert um, yeah so he's someone that oddly enough showed up in multiple places at a very specific period in time for me um, I think when he uh, started getting into prominence, a lot of, uh, you know, living in San Francisco, a lot of my friends are Asian American or Asian. Um, So there were quite a few people who had taken notice of him and his work. So I had heard not only from Drew, but from my other friend, Chris, uh, at the time who, um, yeah, uh, my friend Christopher Lauren Wong, who was uh <laughs> he had to give his entire name yeah 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 he's he's not a big comic book guy but he tries uh, you know he's he definitely dabbles um but i remember being introduced to it i forget either by him or by you or, or justin actually so um it was uh one of those things where just hearing his name and just seeing his work pop up in in multiple places that in and of itself was something that made like forced me to pay attention to him you know Mm -hmm. so um i remember picking up a a couple of copies of his earlier works um there's i forget what it was called but it was like a short anthology um sleepwalk and other stories it might be other stories um yeah so I remember uh, reading a couple, a few of his books. I, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not too caught up on everything that he's done, but uh, of of the stuff that he's written that I have read, I will say that I do enjoy it. He's someone who does a lot of, you know, having read a lot of his short stories, they're like slice of life life vignettes. 
and uh, yeah, I, I I don't think they're the kinds of stories that have really big plots as much as they are just about uh you know they're 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 just about things happening in life observations and emotional uh, beats and emotional beats exactly so that's yeah that's that's my impression of him as as a writer that's 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 how i've come to know him Mm -hmm. yeah what about you drew yeah i think i just came across his work because uh when i was getting back into comics back in college i was just you know exploring everything that was out there and, and all that i possibly could and he's definitely one of the most prominent indie cartoonists and when i saw the cover to sleepwalk and other stories that one just kind of grabbed me because the the art stood out and you know flipped through it had to check it out i think i'm, I'm pretty sure i just that was one of those comics that I, I read at the bookstore, like mm. just without paying for it. And then eventually I bought my own copy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Like I read the whole thing and then I was like, okay, yeah, this is worth owning. So I, I got to get a copy of that. And the other thing that I, I remember is sometime shortly after his second, uh, or I don't I don't think it was his second, I think it was his third collection, but Summer Blonde, that collection, when that came out, uh, I remember hanging out with Justin and we went to a, to a convention to the Alternative yeah, Press Ape. Expo. Yeah, yeah, Ape. Like So we were, we were still in, in Davis at the time uh, and we'd, we made the day trip back home to SF just to go to the convention and we got our book signed. That was a pretty memorable day. I still have the that copy too. He drew a little sketch. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I remember um, him signing my book first. He drew a sketch, and it was of himself, but like nervous and sweating. And then I remember <laughs> him drawing for you, and uh, he drew himself again, but this time the expression was different. He was like like happy or something or at least not sweating or nervous <laughs> uh, no in mine he still he does look kind of nervous oh. I'll, I'll take a picture of it and, and show you later but it's it's Got like it. a picture of him looking to the side and like two little sweat drops are flying off his head okay then that's the same sketch i have but yeah but i do remember being kind of jealous because he spent a lot of time writing <laughs> your name it was a really nice uh <laughs> really nice uh cursive so yeah that's what yeah. i remember from that shit it must be because my name's a little shorter he could spend more time <laughs> on each letter <laughs> he wrote it in times new roman oh go ahead go ahead oh i was gonna add one thing i appreciate about his uh, stories was is that there's like this sense of uh subtlety Mm-hmm. or like coolness about it um that's not to say it doesn't like uh ramp up into some um crazy situation i remember one story i think it was in uh optic nerve where uh a guy gets mad because his cake gets uh do you remember the story he, he buys a birthday cake and he drops it because his car like whizzes by him and causes him <laughs> to mess up the cake and then 
all of a sudden it escalates into him biting the side of the curb and he's about to break his jaw and his teeth so <laughs> so like that stuff does happen in the stories but there's always this like it's always like in an undercurrent it's always underneath this this veil of subtlety which um is really unique and interesting to me yeah i definitely agree with that there's a lot of stuff in his stories that kind of speaks to the i guess maybe darker nature of people yeah and even though uh i think a lot of his characters at least in his earlier work could be kind of defined as sort of typical like 20s slacker or just you know low kind of low achieving type of character in society like a lot of them end up being stories that are pretty emotionally realistic and also just i guess situationally realistic too like you could easily picture these stories actually happening to somebody yeah but i th- yeah. i think that the way that he executes these stories the he's always successful at telling stories that hit an emotional beat that feels real like maybe the situation uh whether or not it's realistic of us whether or not it's a realistic situation it it does feel like he consistently hits emotional realism and you just believe in in the characters and the way that they act and and react to one another and i also think that his his endings tend to um i don't want to pigeonhole him and say that he's like the master of downbeat endings but i think when i looking at his body of short stories i do think that a lot of the his stories do kind of have that uh downbeat kind of ending Mm. where things don't always end up tied up in a neat little bow tie for the character or maybe the character doesn't learn a lesson or learns the wrong lesson or just is even worse off than at the beginning of the story yeah yeah like but at the same time it never really feels like he just wallows in depression either i I think that his stories although they tread on that uh those kind of dim emotions or or even like despair and stuff like that. It it doesn't feel like melodramatic or anything. It it just feels like matter of fact. And I think that sense of matter of factness to his stories just makes them more readable because you're not really dwelling on something that's overly sentimental or trying to manipulate yeah. you or anything emotionally. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. interesting that you um phrased it that way because um well i I was gonna say it's interesting that you brought up how earlier on he tells these stories about these 20 slackers and it does really feel like these stories although they do have a sense of drama it's subdued enough that that's what makes it realistic it's Mm -hmm. not melodramatic you know yeah and and the fact that it is a lot of the stories are about these people who like you said they make their mistakes and the a lot of the endings do 
end up with them either being worse off or than they were then before they started or not even having learned anything um it's it feels like that fits in with the idea of what it means to be 20 you know to mm-hmm. to kind of live your life and have these things happen to you you know when you're first out in the world and just making a bunch of mistakes uh so that i do think all those ideas are are apt you know they they totally uh mesh together to build this picture of what his his uh his pet themes and his uh work is like Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah i agree i think um some of the points that you pointed out drew about the um the realism I, I think this really stems from um, the detail that I mentioned at first, but also this restraint that he has. At yeah, the very restraint least, is a good word. At the very least, he's not exaggerating anything. And you can kind of see it in his artwork, too, where um, his characters do are not necessarily stoic, but their expressions are um, just enough. You know what I'm? <clears throat> excuse me. You know what I'm saying? It's not. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that he's not dropping a giant anvil on on people that are bothering him, or when he's when no, his characters are I'm being saying. chased, they're not drawing a tunnel in a cave side, in a mountain he does, side, he and running do through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not saying that. Or I, when he sees a hot girl, their eyes turn to hearts and pop out of their head. Nothing like that. I don't remember any of that. Like the closest yeah. I remember him <laughs> doing caricatures that was like scenes from a marriage or something, scenes from a wedding, something like that. Scenes from an impending marriage. Impending marriage, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a Ingmar Bergman reference, I think. But I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of restraint in his in his characters and his storytelling and his artwork, and that all comes together really well. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of his artwork, especially in his his 90s work, there's like a very clean look to it. And it's mostly all in black and white, but there's a sharp eye for, for graphic design. And you can kind of see a little bit of influence from uh, the Hernandez brothers, you know, from Love and Rockets in the way that he shades his characters and, and the way that his his inking looks at certain points. It's it's very uh, yeah like understated. It's it's not over the top generally, and um, I th- I think as time progressed, you see him trying out new things and even uh, working in in doing color comics. Even his uh, most recent long form work, I feel like that is pretty different looking from the stuff that he was doing uh, in the '90s and earlier 2000s too. I also wanted to add one more thing to your like list of descriptions, uh, but I do feel like he's a guy who is pretty adept at using negative space too. Yeah, like, it's just so much of it in his comics. It just feels like there's just a vastness to the surrounding areas around all of his characters. It 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 makes their world feel maybe that much more depressing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just how. That how much empty space there is in between, you know? Um, so much of the yeah. 
art just focuses on the characters and it's not like there aren't set uh you know settings or backgrounds or anything but it just you can just tell that there's so much space around these characters uh, while they're going, going through yeah he gives us just enough background so that we know what we're looking at yeah in, in a way it's pretty masterful if you think about uh just the idea of doing minimal minimalism in storytelling especially mm-hmm. in comics because i think a lot of times lesser artists would not be able to sell that as well as he can you know because if, you, if you're drawing something in a minimal style uh whether it's figures or backgrounds sometimes that can be a little bit confusing or disorienting to the reader but he always has just enough detail but he never over renders anything or anybody and you can always see how the characters are feeling that his character acting is excellent and as far as minimalism goes i also think that as a writer that's probably one of his uh, traits as well we were talking a little bit about how he writes with restraint and a lot of subtlety and I think that goes hand in hand with minimalism because he doesn't really try and overexposit anything to you. Uh, like one of the stories that we're going to be discussing today, in particular, uh, killing and dying. Like I, th- I thought that was really well done in terms of not going out of his way to explain the situation or yeah. the emotions to the reader, and just letting the reader, uh, you know, see things play out, read how things play out, and and then come to we come to our own understanding or interpretation of what we have just consumed. Mm-hmm. Like in a way he kind of reminds me like his, for some reason, man, his stories remind me of the writer Raymond Carver. He he wrote a lot of short stories too. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just, I don't know. That's just a, a quality of, of Adrian Tomina's that I've always uh, associated with him. Just this ability to tell these really short, sharp slices of life that can really hit you i want to add to that comment about um subject isolation and minimalism i do think that there's like separation from the subject and the background and he just does enough like you said for uh, when rendering the background but there are instances where he includes details in the background that would normally go unnoticed, but if you look hard enough, they mean something. So in uh, shortcomings, for example, there are little clues and pieces like mise-en-scene that really um, fill the the void when shifting through time in that story. So I think those are the little details that, again, adds to the realism, the, to the verisimilitude of his fiction because um, without it, I don't, I don't know if it would come across as, as strongly mm-hmm. or, or stand out as much. That's yeah. true. That's super true. Like it feels like, especially in shortcomings, but yeah, it feels like when you're reading his work, it's the kind of thing where you really have to pay extra attention to the details in, in the pictures, you know, uh, they really complete the rest of the story. It's, it's, I guess, in some ways, it's comic making at its finest, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. So how about we get to talking about his comics? Sure. Let's go. So we were talking earlier about the three comics that make up the, the source material for the movie 
Paris 13th District. That's mm-hmm. that's the name of it, right? Um, so the first story that Drew mentioned was Hawaiian Getaway, and it's a story about a young Chinese woman by the name of Hillary Chan. And uh, in brief, it's really just a a a series of events in her life as you follow her through her life and you just kind of uh from the the various details that you pick up you get a sense of the kind of person that she is and the i guess the emotional things that uh, the emotional things that burden her throughout her life she starts out as a call center worker and it's a very mundane job that she doesn't really care too much about and you know you can see her talking about it and uh even when you're reading the narration you can tell that she's this is not where she wanted to be in her life and uh this is not uh ideal for her and it starts off with her losing her job and once that happens we just kind of follow her down this rabbit hole of her just i guess her descent you know just uh as as things i wouldn't again because the way uh adrian tomine structures his story like i wouldn't say that her life unravels but it does feel like it's just uh event after event of just things that don't necessarily make her look great or make her life look great yeah yeah Yeah. um so that's she's not necessarily a character that we should aspire to be (laughs) yeah i don't think she's even a character that she aspires to be (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that's a, a Hawaiian getaway right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next story is Amber Sweet. And this is a story about a young woman who goes off to college. And she begins to notice that people are murmuring and saying things about her when she's around. And she doesn't really know what's up. But eventually she comes to the realization that what's happening is that the people in this college are falsely uh, recognizing her or misrecognizing her for a porn star that she happens to maybe look like. And that one singular event just kind of opens up a bunch of uh it it just opens up a bunch of things for her as she as it becomes this weight around her neck and as we view all these other different interactions where she's constantly having to think about what she is in relation to this porn star that people may or may not be recognizing her for you know like mm-hmm. The fact that she happens to look like this porn star or people think she looks like this porn star really begins to shape her life. And it's a story of just how we view how that phenomena affects her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's Amber Sweet. Uh, the last story is uh, Killing and Dying. And it's a story about uh a mother 
and a father and a daughter they it's a family and they're they're all together and it starts off with the daughter announcing that she wants to take up this new hobby of comedy and we can just see from this announcement just what the family dynamic is based on their reaction to the news you know and Mm -hmm. as the story progresses we we follow her as she pursues this hobby but really it's a story that takes place over an undisclosed amount of time but you know that the passage of time is happening because the 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 pictures are showing her in various stages of her life and it's paralleling her pursuit of this hobby with these momentous occasions that are happening in her personal life and uh yeah i i i i won't give away too much uh you know we'll we'll go into it as when we go further into the discussion but uh you you watch as this family evolves as she is also in the middle of trying to overcome her stutter and her i guess social awkwardness and as she uses comedy as the tool to try to i guess i don't even know blossom is the word because that's it's <laughs> not really what happens but you know um well i guess maybe in a way it does but we, we can save that for the discussion part mm-hmm. yeah cool. you guys uh so yeah, that, those are the three stories that we'll be talking about. Um, just as a as a recap, Hawaiian Getaway can be found in the collection Summer Blonde and Amber Sweet, as well as Killing and Dying can be found in the collection Killing and Dying. And all of these stories were originally published in Adrian's uh, ongoing series Optic Nerve, which is his his own comic series that. I guess it just comes out whenever it comes out. Not really sure uh, if he's still doing that or if he's just focusing on on longer works now because I don't think we've had an issue of that in a while. But all all of his optic nerve stuff has been collected into book form for anyone who who wants to check them out. There's a lot of other great stuff in them. But yeah, let's let's talk about Hawaiian Getaway first. What what did you guys think of this story? I think when you were talking about his typical archetypal characters that he tends to discuss over or that he tends to write about over and over again and uh or re- that we see reoccur in quite a few of his stories I do think that she is maybe not quint- uh, I guess quintessentially uh, a version of that that type of character that uh, you mentioned earlier the the slacker uh, young slacker person mm-hmm. uh, i don't i don't really know what her age is defined as in in the story i i, I might have missed it if they specified what it, whatever it was but you know just based on her lifestyle you can tell that she's a person who you know who didn't really she even admits it herself. She didn't want to go to college out of any sense of ambition. She just went because 
she felt familial obligation to do that. And now she just does this job at this call center, which she hates. And even when she loses it, she's not really motivated to do much else with her life. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's that's the kind of person we're dealing with. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, uh, but in addition to that, uh, over the course of the story, we, we do see quite a few different things happening to her. We, we notice that, um, she, in her spare time, she begins to take up odd little, this odd little hobby of, uh, it starts out as like people watching where she just stares out her window all day and then mm-hmm. it eventually evolves to just like prank calling <laughs> where she'll call this payphone that that's outside of her window in the hopes that someone picks it up and she'll just allow herself to be, I guess the, the, she'll just allow herself to be as unabashed as possible, you know, like just unfiltered and Mm -hmm. which is interesting in the context of what the rest of her family life looks like, because we also learned that, you know, she's, I do think that Adrian Tomina uh, captures uh, certain aspects of Asian upbringing quite well. The, Definitely. Like the idea of, you know, having familial pressure and, you know, just the kind of effect that it has on one's, on, on her psyche, you know? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, like we said, she she grew she grew up in a you know Asian American home, and uh, her mother always maybe she doesn't mean to to demean her or put her down, but just by the way that she talks, uh, I guess coming from an Asian family, I can say that it's at best it's it's coming from a place where they wish that you would do better. At worst, it just always comes off like it's all backhanded compliments and mm-hmm. put downs, you know? Yeah, nagging. Yeah. Nagging, exactly. So, uh, yeah, we definitely see how that affects her. She she has to live with the fact that her sister is, although <laughs> younger than her, the more successful one out of, out of the two of them. And, you know, it, it's just... She's just a girl that's seething with resentment. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And the story culminates with her. Well, okay. Not even culminates, but uh, oh, throughout the story uh, on her, in her time alone, she begins to, we, we also get to see her with the interactions that she has with the various men in her life, in her life. And, you know, I, I I phrase that pretty generously because <laughs> like these aren't relationships in the the healthiest sense of the definition, you know? Yeah. So the first guy in her life, or or, or I guess one of the main guys in her life is her male roommate, who you know. At, at the start of the story, we, we just see that we just think of them as just roommates. But we find out later that, you know, for three days they had intimate relations with one another when he first moved in. But after that, he just kind of cut it off without 
any care or concern. Like it meant nothing to him, basically, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now she has to live with him as a roommate, and he has his girlfriend over, and they're arguing all the time. And from her perspective, uh, his girlfriend is just awful, but yet he he still forces himself to be with her, to be attracted to her. I remember he said something pretty douchey when he was talking to Hillary about his girlfriend because he was saying basically like it's or I think she just accused him of liking her because she was hot or something. And then he says something like, well, you always have to start with someone who is as, is as hot as possible because over time in a relationship, uh, you know, the, that attraction, attraction fades. fades. Yeah. So you got to start with the highest possible level of attraction before you get bored. Yeah, like that. That's just yeah. like that's just the kind of guy that I know. If I met someone like that, I probably wouldn't get along with him. I would push him down the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, yeah. It's this idea that well, if it's just gonna be that way, then it, it's almost like it's a race or something. Then I might as well start with the longest head start possible before I get tired. So at least it's the best odds. Yeah. But it's just such. Yeah. It's a. It's pretty telling of what a horrible sack of crap this guy is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's it's kind of tough because it, it's it's hard to it's hard to root for the protagonist when she's kind of still like pining for this guy too in a way or like hung up hung up on yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. It just kind of shows you that like everybody in the story is kind of messed up and flawed, which is realistic and presented in a pretty unsentimental manner and I, th I think that's what makes it easier to swallow because it, yeah. it like i'm the kind of guy like i'll read stories where i don't have to like the character or i don't have i can still enjoy a story even if i don't like the character or if if the character you know if i don't respect the character or whatever like that's that's totally fine because I'm, I'm still appreciating the story for the story yeah. itself, not because you can I have disassociate to... yourself from exactly the fact that they're fictional characters. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it, but it, it, it just this story in particular is is quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. Following this guy up, the second, you know, Bachelor number two. He's <laughs> he's so at one point she calls into a local radio station because she wants to win a Hawaiian getaway hence the name of the story mm -hmm. and she she happens to she doesn't win the hawaiian getaway but she gets a hold of someone on the other end who works at the radio station and he's like the host even, of the show i think was he okay okay yeah. yeah so i wouldn't even call what they did flirtatious uh maybe this radio host was being flirtatious but i i don't know what it was it was kind of gross to me but <laughs> he was significantly older than her yeah yeah but he eventually asks her out and they meet up they have a couple of drinks they converse and then they just have you know it's not even sex in the car it's just uh yeah it's um something she, she gives him a hand <laughs> job That's what yes yes i was yeah. I was looking for a clever way to say it, but yeah, you got right to it. There, there's no real way to like sugarcoat that. She gave him a down under handshake. <laughs> oh, there you go, Albert. Yeah, see, it's doable. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, and after that um, incident, 
that's kind of it. They don't ever talk to each other. Like, even once she's done with it, like, she admits that they don't, that they agree not, they don't agree to meet up. They don't even really talk to each other. They just kind of have this mutual understanding that this is it. And it ends with him sitting there in his car saying that he's going to put her name in for the raffle for the Hawaiian getaway, which yeah. it's it's just r- some really sad stuff. If, like, I ever went pathetic. on a date like that, uh, it's really pathetic, you know? Yeah. And Those, even like, all... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say with the, like, two details in their interaction, you can kind of tell what kind of person this DJ is uh-huh. with uh, by... It seems like he's really um, rooting his confidence in his supposed celebrity, uh, which <laughs> is really funny because on the phone he's he he had the courage or the gall enough to to ask this person on a date, this total stranger, based on their voice, yeah, um, and and uh, was confident enough to to think that she would say yes, and then yeah. at the end. Um, he was like, oh, he he thought that she was um, only Just performing this tickets. favor for the for the tickets because he he has the power to to <laughs> grant her an entry in this um, giveaway. So, yeah, huh, I thought yeah. that was interesting. They're both yeah. pathetic. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think that's an interesting read where you both say that Hillary is pathetic. Where. Yeah, she's an unlikable character, but there are like clues dropped um, throughout the vignettes where you start building sympathy for her, like the conversations with her mother um, and uh, the comparisons with um, her sister. younger sister, yeah. um, her unsuccessful relationships, um, Lloyd treating her like shit. Um, So you start to build sympathy uh, for her and understand why she does shitty things to like bully people basically on the phone, complete strangers. Um, And it's not until the end of the story where uh, there's sort of like this mini revelation on of why she's sort of antisocial and why she's afraid of commitment or why she's afraid to make meaningful relationships. But I, I'm sure we're going to get to that. Yeah. You're a far more sensitive man than Albert <laughs> or or me. Yeah. I mean, now that you mention it, I guess I do I, see... I, I see all those things, too. Yeah, exactly. Like, I in, in those moments where her mother is berating her, I, like, I feel for that. I do. But... There's also a part of me that looks at that and goes, yeah, this can't be all that you are, though, you know? Like, it's, yeah, I guess people are complex, and and it's uh, Tomine's gift to be able to capture that complexity to make even people that we find pathetic or or unlikable. They're still realistic. They're real. They feel like real people. Yeah, like, our feelings towards them can be multifaceted, you know? Yeah. So... Yeah, because whether or not I feel that she's pathetic as a protagonist, it's kind of immaterial to the enjoyment I have of the story because it's it's like seeing her go through all these things, 
it it really only works because she is the way that she is and i think what kind of pushes me over the edge into like not really liking her was, was the whole thing with her her grandmother and like that whole the way that that plays out when her her grandma dies and then uh, her mom called and says well you didn't even uh visit her anyway so you know this is why it's like almost kind of like blaming hillary like th- there was something about that that just kind of showed where her priorities were and they were really honestly just with herself yeah she does so come off kind of selfish <laughs> yeah so I, I think it's it's interesting to yeah i gotta i gotta stick up for hillary so okay. you're okay. saying that conversation with her mother basically guilt tripping hillary uh-huh. uh was because hillary was selfish yeah i think i think her takeaway from that conversation as opposed to like feeling bad for her grandmother like the fact that her focal point was i guess more about how she was feeling in the moment as opposed to how as opposed to the fact that her grandmother their grandmother just died i don't know i it's it's not i don't feel like that's a characteristic that I would look up to in a person. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, like the whole thing with that phone conversation is, is that Hillary uh, is is shocked that nobody told her that her grandma passed away, but we also know that she never visited or called her grandmother when her grandmother was alive, even though Hillary's mom reminded her to to do that she never did it so it's it's almost like wh- why do you care now when she's dead when you didn't care when she was alive i disagree i i think that it, it seems like her parents are willfully punishing her by withholding information until the end and then on top of that um, accusing her for not earning the right to to the the privilege of that information which seems really messed up to me so i i don't agree at all Hmm. actually the the information is a family member has passed away that should not be gated in any way um huh yeah i i could see your point there i could see your point it I could see that 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 part is unfair to Hillary. Like, I'm yeah. not saying that her her parents or her mom are good people. completely uh, <laughs> without any any wrongdoing, but I think it's just really telling of Hillary's character that she's upset that they did keep that information from her when you know, like now again, it's just she didn't really look out for her grandmother when her grandmother was still alive. But now that she's gone, she's upset that her parents didn't immediately tell her that her grandmother passed. I don't know. It, to me, it, it, there's a disparity there. Yeah. It kind of feels like her parents, I'm sure, I'm sure there's an element of her parents or her mother, uh, being a little bit spiteful towards her daughter for this. But it, it, it's because her daughter 
because Hillary brought it onto herself in a way. Like I'm pretty yeah. sure that if she had dutifully gone to see her grandmother or follow up on on calling her grandmother regularly, her her mother would have been, you know, more pleased. And uh, I guess you can make the argument that like why does she have to live to please her mother and whatnot? But I don't know. To me that like that's just being a good daughter. It's just really. what it means to be in a family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I agree with all that, but w- what I disagree with was her reason for being upset. Um, you mentioned her being upset because nobody told her, and I think it's more about the intention behind why nobody told her or why her parents specifically did not. Mm. And yeah, it was that's, to that's, that's a nuanced her. understanding. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Overall, I do think that the scene gives us a good understanding of the frustration that she feels, even though she kind of brings it upon herself. There's also the sense like you can see that she doesn't necessarily have anybody in her corner either. Her parents aren't necessarily fully supportive of her choices and still treat her, I don't know, I guess more like a kid than as a, an adult. Right. Albert, did you want to talk about the the Last Bachelor before we get to the ending? Yeah, sure. Um, so the Last Bachelor, uh, <laughs> the Last Bachelor, <laughs> it, it ends up. Uh, the Last Bachelor ends up being one of the guys who that she ends up prank calling. Um, I, I think his name was Sam. Yeah, and anyways, uh, you know. While she's prank calling the payphone outside, uh, what ends up happening is he he happens to be one of the people that picks up, and they begin to have this exchange with another, one another, and they they have this moment of, I guess, connectivity. Uh, I think it's something that comes from either her isolation and loneliness, or or maybe even to some degree a genuine attraction to this guy that she's, you know, viewing from her window, uh, which is kind of a creepy thought. But they have the, uh, you know, she she teases him or titillates him with the potential for meeting up in person, and the next day he comes back, and at which point they they meet in person and they spend some time together and. Right then and there, uh, you know, after, you know, just this one evening or afternoon with one another, uh, they end up having sex with one another. And she goes from that to asking him to go with her to uh, the funeral as her, I guess, for the better lack of a word, as her date. <laughs> <laughs> you know, her plus one to a funeral, <laughs> and and they agree to to make this arrangement. And the story ends on this note where she's waiting for him, and even she realizes how absurd it is to expect this guy to show up. And she talks about how he's already thirty minutes late. So we, as the reader, don't even know. Like even though. Maybe in a best case scenario, this interaction that they had, if this guy was being genuine or sincere, like maybe he really did like her 
and this was something he was going to pursue further. But uh, as the story ends, he hasn't shown up yet, and she's just kind of lost in thought as she thinks about uh, an incident from her childhood where she goes uh, where they went on a, a vacation, and she did this, and she got sunburnt uh, almost on purpose just because she was too stubborn to put on the sunscreen exactly she was being uh you know uh uh resistant to her her mother's commands and then as a result you know they her mom belittles her and then the family goes off without her to to go on vacation and she talks about how she's just in this uh in the hotel room uh you know trying to recover from her really bad sunburn and she looks at this suitcase because her mom told her that they should just ship her back in a suitcase since she can't enjoy the vacation now so she's looking at this suitcase and pondering at the idea of what it means for her to be in this suitcase and then she gets into it to realize that she just how easy it is for her to fit in this thing and it ends with us not really getting uh, a clear idea of whether Sam calls her back or not, but that's kind of the last lingering thought that she has. Yeah, there's a pretty impressive uh, symbolism there of her curling up in the fetal position in the big suitcase. Yeah. But the way that yeah. it's handled on the page, it's just, it's it's actually uh, the smallest panel of the six panels on the page, which is interesting. So you see that it, it's not necessarily done in this melodramatic style, but it's it's more understated, which yeah. really works out. Yeah. Huh. I did have one more thought about what you were saying earlier, Justin, about uh, you know, our lack of empathy towards her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not not to go back to that or to to beat that horse to death even further, but. There is something about her that I think irks me a little in that when I look at how she acts and how she, like, I guess the situations that she puts herself in, uh, to some degree, like, I get that there's some stuff that happened in her past that were, that I, I do feel sorry for, but... There is a part of me that also feels like she doesn't even really value herself that much, you know? And it's hard for me to look at that and be like, is this is this all your I, I guess it's it there's a part of me in the back of my brain that's frustrated with her too, which is like, okay, your parents behaved your mother in particular behaved this way towards you, but for you to just kind of let yourself be this way to 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 fall into that that like yeah like the idea of well your mom told you to put on suntan lotion but out of stubbornness you chose not to and you got this really bad sunburn like that is frustrating to me to mm-hmm. no avail you know and and maybe it's telling of me uh slowly evolving into a crotchety parent without a child but i can't wait until you have kids man i am gonna beat them so severely 
Like, oh gosh, I'm glad that I have insurance from work because we are getting our money's worth. We are totally getting our money's worth. Uh, no comment on that, but I think um, about your... is <laughs> about to be Mike Tyson's punch out in here. I'm about Mike your... Tyson and their little Mac. Okay. About your comments about Hillary, and I I do agree that she does things that that lead to um, her getting harmed in some sort. Like she knows what's coming, she knows the consequences of her actions. But I do think that the punishment that is handed down is way too severe for the actions that she's taken. Um, so, for instance, resisting to put on some block. She's already suffered sunburns. On top of that, uh, she has a sense of abandonment um, yeah. that is um, that is uh, handed down by her mother. She's stuck in a hotel room by herself. She's told that she'd be shipped back home in a suitcase. So I think there is some sort of trauma that she's also suffering uh, as a result. And you know, years of that uh, would really hurt somebody's confidence Can and I the ability to, to improve. Sure. I mean, I, I don't know what your guys' experience was like, but I I do recall similar things happening to me when I was growing up. And yeah, it's it's frustrating having parents who who feel like they need to like twist the knife a little more. Uh you know, I I, I don't know. I've never grown up in a, a an occidental household. So I don't know what it's like. I mm-hmm. I don't assume that it's like full house where everybody's just kind of uh doe-eyed and uh, blissfully ignorant of, you know, reality or anything mm-hmm. like that. But um you know, like again, uh, like those are things in terms of like just what they say to you. I, I get it. Maybe over years and years of just that constant uh, negativity, it, it it does take an effect on a person, but I don't think that's the severest thing that can happen to a person. <laughs> Am I wrong? Yeah, You're not wrong, but I, I'd also uh, argue that not everybody is built the same way. Not everybody is as strong as you, Albert. Like, I remember growing up uh, in an Asian family household, of course, uh, but also, you know, uh, going through things like this where my parents would be super strict. And um, and I grew up, I believe, uh, like a well-adjusted adult. I mean, I think I'm totally fine, but there are eh. things, <laughs> things about <laughs> Well, I'm okay. It's it's disputed. Okay, but there there are things uh, about me as I reflect on you know how I am now and uh, how I've like outgrown uh, some of the um, um, deficiencies uh, I I perceive to have socially, and I think part of that at least is rooted in how I was raised. Um, I'm not blaming my parents for anything like that but i'm just trying to 
uh, figure out like why I I felt like I was deficient in these ways. Yeah. Um, and it yeah part of it's my personality part of it is how you know I I just how I am how I how I be but I think mm -hmm. um, it's I can also attribute some of that to how yeah. I, I grew up um, how I was raised. Yeah. You know, one of the things that helped me get through uh, a lot of my childhood as I was growing up and dealing with, you know, this this kind of behavior from my parents was uh, I constantly was reminding myself that I was substantially younger than my parents. And someday they would get old enough where I could put them in a home of my choosing. <laughs> and I would always bear this resentment towards them, knowing that I would put them in the worst, lowest quality home that I could put them in. Um, I, I was able to sleep very well uh, for a whole lot of years. That was the knowledge that kept you going? Yeah, yeah. It's just, I just got to sign a, the contract, <laughs> sign on the dotted plan, line. <laughs> you had a plan for revenge, and although it would take many decades, you, you continue to patiently uh, wait for that, huh? You, yeah, you, I, I play the long game. I don't. Yeah, I don't need to beat game. them right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, the orderlies at the crooked old folks home that I put my parents in, they're gonna do that for me. <laughs> <laughs> they're plunging their hands into the filth so that you can keep yours clean. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, anyways. <laughs> I was going to say that uh, with this story, the way it ends, even though uh, the character obviously has a lot of facets to her, and even though I've made my personal judgment on her character, <laughs> I, I, I do think that what I like a lot about the story is that it does capture this poignant feeling of listlessness in life. I mean, I may not be able to empathize entirely with how she treats herself and how she treats other people, but I do empathize with the idea of not knowing what you're doing in life and just feeling like everything isn't working and there's no one really in your corner or things are just operating against you and you just, you know, things are just not where you either expected them to be or want them to be. And I also like how the story, it doesn't end with something uplifting, but it actually doubles down on Hillary feeling pretty much just as defeated as she ever did. Yeah. I mean, there, there's this whole uh, kind of circular element to the story because the first panel of the story is, it starts at the at the end of the story, you know, like the first panel of the story is her sitting down, getting ready for, her grandmother's funeral and uh that's essentially the last panel also and it just starts in this you know like the sad place and ends on a sad place and emotionally there isn't really anything to hint that things are gonna get better for her yeah and yeah even though they don't explicitly say it at least in my interpretation of it when the story ends, I'm pretty sure Sam doesn't come to her. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm confident that that 
after their one night of tawdry sex, uh, this invitation to go meet her family at a funeral is not something that he would take up as future relationship material. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, I mean, do either of you feel, or, you know, Drew, Drew you, you've stated yours, but are you more optimistic, Justin? No, I, I think um, I would lean towards uh, him not showing up as, yeah. as the most likely scenario, but I also think it's left um, unknown for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. yeah. The reader yeah. can still use his, you can still use your imagination. A more optimistic person can assign a happy ending to her. You can tell yourself that the dude was rushing to her place but got hit by a bus, and that's why he's late. Or, for all we know, he's actually a Nigerian prince, and he's going to give (laughs) her millions upon millions of dollars, and they live happily ever after as they ride off into the sunset. Maybe. Yeah. But I also think there's another reason for the uncertainty, and it's just this, this... undercurrent of uncertainty in Hillary's life that just like is always there is always looming Mm -hmm. so um yeah I I do think that that's one of the reasons why it ended the way it did yeah that's a good point yeah I do like how the story manages to capture that feeling too like not only a sense of listlessness but a sense of uncertainty like, you don't know what the future is going to hold. And uh, at least in my interpretation, there isn't much to look forward to or there isn't anything <laughs> on the horizon that, that uh, you know, will lift her spirits. It, it's just, yeah, if she's going to get out of that suitcase, she's going to have to do it herself, essentially. It's kind of meta because all three of us are not optimistic. And I think this kind of reflects how Hillary feels all the time about her her prospects in life. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're all feeling that way, I'm sure that, that that was done for a reason. Yeah. I wonder if there's anybody out there that has an optimistic reading on this story. Well, actually, that's kind of interesting. Because, uh, well... If you think about it in the context of the movie we watched, That's one true. could say one could say that that is the optimistic version of of the, that, the ending. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, the movie people had an optimistic outlook. Yeah. So there we go. <laughs> you guys have any final thoughts on Hawaiian Getaway before we move on to the next story? Yeah, I'm I'm good. Just. Yeah, I'm good to go to Amber Suite. All right, let's talk about Amber Sweet. Like, this one I thought was interesting because, well, it was in color, so just, like, visually, it was different. And I I think uh, it it just makes it stand out. His his line work is a little different, too, uh, in color. At least I see it most in in his characters' faces, like their jawlines and the way he he draws them in, in this one. Um, also, the the coloring choices kind of remind me of I don't know, like Chris Ware or something. Like a lot of use yeah. of flat colors and and not too many uh, gradients or anything like that. It's yeah. flat. It's also earthy and 
Uh, mm-hmm. Not as vibrant as you typically see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, muted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, in Amber Suite, like we mentioned earlier, this is the story of a young col or yeah, a college student who ends up going to campus and she begins to realize that people around her are mistaking her for this porn star. And it just begins to haunt all aspects of her life, you know? Uh like to the point where she finds it hard to go to school. Uh, she can't even maintain any relationships with any like guys that she's meeting. Um, in one occasion, she meets a you know a decent guy, and I'm pretty sure you know he he's he's genuinely good, but because of what everybody else is saying about her or what everybody else thinks, uh, you know the guy just can't deal with it. Like he gets into a fight with these frat boy type guys who who are just being gross towards her and you know he well they don't beat the crap out of him or anything but he doesn't win the fight you know and yeah at the end of it he's just like i I thought i could do this but i can't and that's just kind of the end of that relationship and then she follows that up by meeting this other guy and she thinks He's okay, but to they they end up like being together and uh, to the point where you know they spend time at each other's houses until she finds out that for this guy the fact that she looks like this porn star is a feature, not a bug. You know, like mm-hmm. she finds his internet search history and. Apparently, he's been looking up pictures of this girl, uh, this porn star. And the first thing that he says to her is, you know, guys in his life have been sending him these videos uh, that that they let him know about it. So, you know, she she took it on good faith because he was a funny dude and she she wanted to like him. But. You know, even before that, like, there was already signs that this guy was kind of a douchey liar because he told her that he worked in, <laughs> like, movies or something, but... He worked I, for Disney. Yeah, but... But he was uh, he was selling churros at Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. I guess in the most literal sense, he did work for Disney. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He made it sound like he was a scriptwriter, but he was just writing on spec or yeah. like trying to like write stuff that he could pitch to people. <laughs> yeah. And then what ends up happening is so she forgives him this first time, but then you know, a little further down uh in their relationship, she finds she finds out that he's got a secret folder on his uh on his computer and whenever a guy has a secret folder on his computer, it's bad news bears, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. yeah. She opens it up and it's just a bunch of uh, lewd videos of this porn star. And that's when she knows that this guy's just full of crap. He, you know, he lied to her and it's, it's a pretty big lie, you know? Mm-hmm. And she just leaves him. Uh, well, two things. She leaves him and then she just factory resets his computer. And even after all that, once she's gone, this guy's response isn't even that he's mad that she's she left. He's mad that his precious, precious scripts 
were were <laughs> taken off off the off the hard drive. Yeah. You know, what a loser. Yeah. <laughs> and the There's story something called, funny yeah. about laughing at these pathetic guys, these pathetic yeah. characters. He's there's something about this guy where I think, and this is a testament to Adrian Tomine's like writing ability, but he's someone that I wish was real so I could hate him in real life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I want to hate him that much, <laughs> but the story culminates uh, just years. Uh, I don't even know if it's years later, but there's definitely been a passage of time and, like you a month see, later, I think, is what the caption says. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you can see that she looks drastically different now. And what ends up happening is she runs into the actual porn star at, at this public location. The actual Amber Sweet. The actual Amber Sweet. It's, yeah, it's a pretty, uh, I guess, heart. I don't even know if heartfelt's the word. It's not heartfelt, but... I guess it's it's the equivalent of an emotional anima in that she's just had this the idea of this person just haunting her for all this time and in the meeting of this person in the moment that she gets to meet this person it's a release for her a relief mm-hmm. of sorts you know because she's no longer like I don't know if she's competing with this idea of this uh, fictional porn star or this remove this per- this character that's like removed from her reality that exists almost outside of her reality. But it, in meeting with her, it just makes her a real person that she can kind of vent her frustra- frustrations towards. And it ends with this really... Uh, I guess it's a pretty sad note, but uh, with and the real Amber Sweet just putting a lot of empathy on her and just saying I'm sorry over and over again, and it allows her to move on with her life. You know, mm-hmm. I thought it was a pretty, pretty. It was a great story. I was I was really into it. Yeah, yeah, surprisingly optimistic. Yeah, right? For something as, uh, I guess, for something that starts out, I guess that's pretty dark, right? Yeah, I think, like, the harassment and bullying she had to face, that that's definitely dark. Yeah, yeah. I do like the way that the protagonist meeting with Amber Sweet was handled because it's it's done in this very delicate manner. Like there isn't any melodramatic conflict or or a cat fight or anything like that. Yeah. It turns out that this real Amber Sweet is a person who is empathetic and and. Uh, you know they actually have a real conversation. Feel the way that it's presented is it just feels uh even though it's brief it's only like two pages it it does feel uh pretty realistic just a lot of subtlety in it where you can i think reread those couple pages over and and get a lot out of it yeah yeah i think a lot of the times we've been trained by movies to think that 
when when the crux of the the plot arrives it's going to be this huge explosion where you know she's going to just unleash all of her frustration tears and frustration and anger in this like violent outburst <laughs> or something right but yeah it's even the fact that their meeting is just a matter of oh i just happened to be in this place that she just happened to be walking by at this point in time i just happened to be at this cafe when when this person that has been uh, a cloud over my life for the past couple of months when she happens to walk by and i get to confront them in that moment that it's so i guess mundane that it's believable and how normal it is you know yeah yeah i had a totally different read on this story whoa um, <laughs> wow I, so <laughs> yeah and i'm i might be the only one i don't know but uh for me amber sweet is the most memorable story of Tomane's that i've read and it's not because of so much the content of the story but because of its form and you know you can find many interesting aspects of the content right there's this notion that uh somebody else's life choices uh uh, affects uh, another person um, so I, I do think that's super interesting but what I find even more interesting is the shift in perspective especially at the end after it's revealed that the protagonist the unnamed woman is actually speaking to somebody else not the mm -hmm. reader so mm -hmm. when the story starts off uh, the narrator uh, it feels like it's speaking directly to the reader but it's not until the very last two panels where you uh, where it's revealed that there's a third party there and once that is revealed what I got from that is that well this narrator is actually unreliable this third party is is uh, a new romantic interest that she's trying to convince like oh that that was or preempt the realization that uh somebody that looks like her a doppelganger uh was a porn star so it makes it made me question if all this story was plausible at all one if she actually had a doppelganger two if that doppelganger became like a famous porn star three that chance encounter with the real Amber Sweet, did that even actually happen? That seems very implausible too. And then four, that they were able to come together and build this like intimate relationship within like a few minutes and Amber Sweet actually embracing her, apologizing to this total complete stranger. So all of that stuff uh, uh, was, brought under a new lens after those two last panels for me. And that's why I think that this story is pretty special and why I remember it. Hmm. That's an interesting point that I hadn't considered, but now that you've said it, I have to think about it. Cause I, yeah, I, I can't see the, where that comes from, especially because on that last page, when we finally 
get to you know the present day scene when she's talking to her new uh, romantic interest we only see her from the back we don't see her face we don't know what she actually looks like now or who this person is in a way there's like a distance between us 100 um, percent. Mm-hmm. and it makes you question like other details too so when it's first discovered that you know amber sweet exists and people are bullying her uh she could have take some, taken some steps to to mitigate that uh that hardship by disguising herself a little bit earlier yes she does cut her hair at the end wear glasses but you could have done that like way before you know like it questions the 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 actions and decisions that she's she's made throughout the story and i thought that was like super smart yeah yeah, your your reading of it definitely adds even more depth to the story. And I think um, we'll talk about the movie later. That that was a totally different interpretation from what I've seen, and actually what what you you all have talked about too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I thought that that really um, disappointed me. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sure. You we'll mean in terms of how off the movie was compared yeah. to the source? Exactly. Yeah. 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 I think trying to do this story justice in in a film would have been a pretty big challenge, even if they hadn't been trying to combine it with two other stories. Mm. I do think as as an idea it was really interesting uh i guess plot yeah mm-hmm. just just this idea that mistaken identity could like take over someone's life so so drastically this person that she doesn't even know so um yeah i was pretty fascinated by by just the subject matter of that that of amber of the amber sweet story yeah but it's i a had pretty a pretty creative premise yeah and yeah it, it almost does feel like it's it's something that's pretty fit for i guess you know our modern readers or or people who, who are growing up with the internet uh mm-hmm. just in terms of taking something that is pretty specific to us to a specific era of time and extrapolating kind of the ideas and issues that occur as a result of that time period you know Mm -hmm. so but yeah i i i hadn't considered the idea of her as an unreliable narrator it might be something i'd have to reread to see if I feel that way, but hey, that's the that's the uh, the beauty of of these comics is, is is it's our ability to interpret and reinterpret them as we dissect them and uh, contemplate them further, right? Yeah, there's definitely something great about comics with that kind of depth that motivate you to reread and contemplate them. I can't do that with Spawn. <laughs> yeah i mean i could but i don't want to 
<laughs> you could. It would just take you like two seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm done contemplating that issue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you guys want to move on to the third story? I was. I did want to say one more thing about the ending here, since yeah. uh, we've been enlightened with this new uh, interpretation. But I, I wonder if. Uh, I'll ask you, Justin, but I, since you you were the one who noticed it in the first place, but I wonder. Even with that interpretation, knowing that she's an unreliable narrator, does that make this another downbeat story, or is this optimistic at all? It's another downbeat story, because the response from the romantic interest is okay. And again, that's uncertainty. We can't read his mind, but what I assume with this interpretation is that he is questioning uh, the validity of her story mm. at the very least, or he um, already knows about Amber Sweet. Um, so, yeah. That's really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I really, now Now I need to sit back down and reread this from start to finish again. Actually, when you do mention, when you put it that way, though, and you you look at that very last panel in the story, Again, it's that use of negative space, right? The fact that the two of them are just so small in in this like wide on this hillside, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that you don't see their faces, and the fact that he just has this one word response, there is something kind of emotionally empty about what you're viewing there, right? Yeah, like and like if you think about all the stuff that she just told him, she just must have talked for a whole length of time, and his only response is, okay. <laughs> yeah the, yeah you know like i i didn't think that at the time where even though there was something positive about the idea of her you know speaking of this in contrast to a uh, hawaiian getaway where i was looking at uh, the main character there and i was just kind of hating on her decisions in in this story, I, the way that I viewed it was like you, Drew. Uh, it was like, okay, this thing happened to her, and it wasn't anything that was that she brought on to herself, but it, it truly was this force outside of her that was affecting her life. And for her to come out on the other side of that, uh, you know not messed up i think i viewed that as a pretty positive mm-hmm. uh ending to that story but i did remember reading uh you know down to the very last panel and seeing that response there is something about that response that feels inconsistent with the idea of this as a positive uplifting story I I will say that I don't I don't again I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that I'm certain that she's a unreliable narrator but yeah the it the it's hard not to look at the contrast between that scene and the story that came before it mm-hmm. and not think about what's going on right yeah even without that interpretation, that response also 
uh, alludes to. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like not in the, Yeah, there's at the very least he's uh, apathetic to what she yeah. just said. If I just bore my entire soul and being to this person, and that was the best response that they could give me, I'd burn their house down. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to sound weird, but when I looked at the last panel, I think at a glance, for a second I thought uh, it was... They were looking at a post-apocalyptic landscape. <laughs> and I, I had to like look at it closely to to realize that they were overlooking the city. Yeah. But I, maybe there's just something about the the color scheme and the way some of the lines and the houses are drawn that just made things look a little surreal. Yeah. Like so much of the other stuff, the other backgrounds throughout the story are are really uh, cleanly depicted. Like it really does kind of remind me of a Chris Ware comic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and then like the that last panel, it's almost like a different reality. Like the amount of uh, obscurity like, there. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's there's a fog in the distance or haze. There's uh, mm-hmm. all the all the vegetation uh, block. And then even between that there's a uh, really sparse marks that are meant to represent um, the metropolitan environment but you you don't see any of that um, clearly mm-hmm. yeah yeah really interesting tricks there definitely makes me want to ask Tomina what interpretation is correct I, I don't know if he would say yeah. I mean, I'm looking at it right now, and even the placement of okay and all that, right? Mm-hmm. If he had just removed that one okay, you could still, I could still kind of tell myself that it's, they're having a quiet contemplative moment together, right? Mm-hmm. And they, like, they're just, they're just kind of processing everything that she's just said. But it's like you said, the fact that, there's just this one lingering word in this vast scene that he's drawn, right? Mm-hmm. It just hammers home the point of just how empty that response was. <laughs> I think the other thing about it that I'd I'd have to take into consideration is I don't even know if that guy is like a potential lover. That's true. Like I I'm I'm looking at it. I I don't think there's anything that indicated that was that. Not that that sort of a response would be better if this guy was like a friend or a relative, but yeah, I I I don't know. I'd have what if, to. What if that was her dad? Uh, <laughs> that's quite a story to tell your dad. <laughs> I mean, it's you could easily infer that because of the previous panel where she says, you know, just in case, right? Just in case it comes up. Um, so, I this this whole premise of like this third person within this this narration and who she's speaking to. Um, there's there's got to be a reason for that being there. Uh, Tomine could have easily just not included those last yeah. two panels, yeah. or even yeah. adjusted the the first panel to. To not 
like uh, be so uh, casual about it. With that okay at the end in the first panel, the last panel kind of mirrors that. It's like uh, mm-hmm. like a call and answer. So yeah. what I'm saying is that my interpretation is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I like that confidence, Justin. I don't. <laughs> Keep it. <laughs> uh, Alright. You guys want to move on to the next story? Yeah, let's talk about killing and dying. Yeah. So, as I mentioned earlier, this is a story of, you know, a young girl who at the beginning of the story... She has her mother and father with her, and her mother's encouraging her to, you know, take up this comedy class. And, uh, you know, at at the start of it, it all seems pretty normal, but except for the fact that their their family dynamic is it's it's a little grating, you know. Uh, she's the daughter is clearly this, I guess. Her name is Jessie. I guess she's socially awkward and she's, she's a little a funky teenager. looking. She's te- a teenager. Oh, she's did you kinda... just say she was funky looking? Frumpy. Oh, frumpy? Yeah. Is that worse? Uh, I don't know. How would you feel if someone called you frumpy? If I was dressed frumpy and they called me frumpy, then I would say, okay, that's a pretty accurate interpretation of what I'm going for. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but okay suffice it to say she's not glamorous looking and she doesn't look like she's attempting to be glamorous Mm -hmm. you know um so she's they're they're discussing uh her taking this comedy class because she's taken an interest in it and her mother is being encouraging but the dad is just he's just negative about it you know he he talks about how he doesn't want her to embarrass herself, but they they discuss it further, and you know it, you just kind of get the impression that this might not be so much about her as much as he doesn't want to feel embarrassment for her, or he doesn't want to feel embarrassment by proxy. One of those two, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but as time goes on. Uh, you know, you have these discussions that they have, uh, you know, she does her first practice set in front of them and they're, you know, it's, it turns out to be encouraging. The, the parents are both, uh, they're impressed by what she's done. Um, and they go on to have this discussion about the subject matter of her comedy, whether she should be telling wholesome jokes or whether she should be telling, you know, edgier, uh, more profane jokes. Um, there's, there's a bigger discussion about like this class that she wants to attend. And, you know, uh, again, it's, it's more of this clashing between the mother and the father where, you know, the the mother wants to be supportive of her, but the dad is just looking this at this as money that he doesn't want to waste, quote unquote waste. Mm-hmm. Uh, talks about it uh, in terms of how she's had other interests that she hasn't 
uh, committed herself to, or or again the idea that this is just something that is just a passing fancy, or just this is something that she's just not going to be good at. He doesn't want to feel a sense of shame. Then they actually go to the actual class, uh, you know, this special showing, and Jesse actually kills it that night, you know. So they they as they're walking out, they're feeling pretty good about it, and they're talking to her, and you know, even the dad is on board for a brief second. Mm-hmm. But then, as they go over to the teacher of this class, and you know, they as they go to get, say their goodbyes, they find out that. She, uh she has she didn't even write her own jokes you know uh the the teacher makes a comment about how her next step is oh you need to learn uh now the next step is to write your own jokes at this point they're as they're leaving the dad comes back inside the school to ask about that and you know he just confirms in his mind that this teacher just gave her these jokes uh that she didn't even write them so He's kind of upset that I spent all that money just so you could write jokes for her to tell to other people, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and while all this ha- is happening, you just see the mother. She's She starts out looking pretty normal, like she just has short hair. But as the story progresses, you begin to notice that she's got a do-rag on and... Um, yeah, the, the indicators are there, but she's uh, she's she's probably got cancer is is the likely interpretation of what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And uh, what ends up happening is it skips the story skips ahead uh, a few years. And at one point, the mother is no longer there. And, you know, we just see that it's Jesse and her dad living together. And she's talking about how she wants to continue to do comedy, but she's now found this uh, interest in improv. So she decides to go off and uh, she doesn't tell him about it. Uh, she doesn't – she tells him about it, but she doesn't want him to go and see uh, because the way that she builds it up, the way that she tells him about it, it makes it sound like she's actually doing pretty well at it, you know? And that combined with the previous knowledge of how uh, of uh, of us viewing her when she was delivering her jokes in the previous class, it indicates that she has at least some talent for for this. So it sets up this expectation that she might actually be pursuing this dream and she might actually be good at it. And then the dad decides to follow her uh, after she leaves. Uh, he sneaks into the club to watch her and it just ends up being a disaster, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just disaster is the watch. right word. Yeah. Um, and then it ends with her coming home, and the dad is already there. And before she gets home, he just has this entire, like, I guess it's a breakdown because. I want to say that it's confirmed in his mind that his that Jesse has gone out there and she I, she embarrassed herself in, in in like a spectacular fashion and he mm-hmm. had to be there to watch that but it's also 
this pain that he has that this frustration with his his now dead wife because she was so encouraging of Jesse to do this and even though she's dead now like he's living with the legacy of that decision and you know Jesse decided to continue to pursue this because her mother uh was so supportive of it mm-hmm. but now he has to try to be this supportive person even though he's seeing just how almost how right he was and how painful it was you know mm-hmm. and it ends with her coming home and he's just been beating his head against the wall because of all these just feelings that are just flowing from him and he he has a talk with Jesse and they just they don't really in, he doesn't really indicate to her that he saw what happened uh but they carry on this conversation and she builds it up like it was a great night and he doesn't let on that he knows that it, it wasn't and he he plays into the I guess the narrative that she's setting up for herself and that's just kind of where it ends. Do you think he was a good father, Albert? I think he's a complicated man, honestly. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think I I don't have kids, um, but I think, I think it's that thing of where, as an adult and being on the other side of life, um, you know, there are things that you see sometimes and there are decisions you wish your kids don't make, but it's hard to, to see them making these decisions, even though you don't want them to. And even though everybody tells you that you should be supportive, um, I think he was trying his best. Uh, I I do think he definitely had jerk tendencies. Uh, <laughs> I, I I honestly don't think it would have cost him anything to be supportive, right? Like the the real thing of him is he had his own personal chip on his shoulder, and he couldn't get past it in order to be supportive to his own daughter. Mm-hmm. So so in his way, I think he was caring for her but it was i think it was a pretty uh misspent way to to care for her you know mhm mhm i don't know what do you guys think of that i mean Go ahead, Justin. i was going to you're say the only be... one of us that's an actual parent <laughs> right yeah i have three kids i don't think any of them want to be a stand-up comic well at least not yet maybe the baby does i don't know um to be fair to the dad i think he's he's a good dad um but i also think that he was supportive uh, especially after that first uh routine where where everything went well it actually uh, seemed like the roles switched place where the mother mother was a, a little more protective and the father was like uh a little more liberal uh, with uh, the pursuit of um, 
Jesse's hobby. So um, there, there is some fickleness there. Um, I also think that this story is really about how, uh, as a parent, your interpretation of what's best for your children intertwines with um, your own personal interests. And you kind of see that um, that that throughout the the entire story, where um, Jesse's success kind of uh, causes this reinterpretation of like, oh, the situation. Uh, I mean, hey, maybe this is going to be okay. She's actually doing really well. I should support her even more um, from the dad's perspective. Or from the mother's perspective, oh, she's using foul language and making fun of people. That's not really nice. That might hurt her in the future. Um, maybe she should stop doing that. Uh, from you know, so that those are like uh, the the self interest sort of manifesting in in parenting, um, and their own perspectives uh, sort of dictating or informing their parenting decisions. Uh, what's really interesting is uh, the the etiquette um, that you have to have around a person that is that is feeling ill or uh, is about to die, um, and you know the mother is is going to die. Uh, we see that she's slowly deteriorating through the story, um, and when she does die, the father assumes her role as a supporter, right? Yeah. Uh, he still feels, you know, he needs to be uh, the protector. But um, when he's in front of Jesse, he's trying to support her as much as possible. But when the mother was there, she held fast to that role. And you kind of think, oh, is she doing that because she wants to be remembered and under a positive light? And maybe that's why the dad is doing that now. Or is she truly supportive of her? So there, there's like this, this um, um, resident, this, this uh, reluctance to, to think that way because you know of the the sympathy you have towards this person that is about to die. But if you dig a little bit deeper, maybe that person is also a little bit selfish as well. So there, there is this like interesting dynamic there where, you know, this selflessness versus selfishness kind of comes into play. Hmm. I think that's... I was today years old when I learned that Justin was more cynical than I am. Right? That was kind of the <laughs> thought that I had. <laughs> I was like, whoo. <laughs> that is a... Uh, <laughs> you you have once again given me an interpretation that didn't cross my mind and I have to think on this so Albert you go ahead and and say what you were about to say. Well, I I was going to agree with him on 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 the idea that parenting is is you know this complicated it, it's complicated mix of all kinds of emotions and experiences right because no matter how much we want to think uh people are capable of getting it right like at, at the end of the day i i don't think any parent is really well bad parents are 100 percent certain of what they're doing but mm -hmm. you know i i 
I'd like to think that good parents are are kind of beset with all of the contradicting impulses of what could and could not happen, right? Mm-hmm. So for every decision that you make, there's always this sense in the back of your mind that you want the best outcome for your child, but at the same time, uh, what what is the best outcome? And and you being an adult who is not too certain of yourself, uh, you're not really sure what that best outcome is supposed to look like because again, you can on on the one level some ideas that you have to say go say tell you to go one way, whereas other ideas tell you to go another way, and at the end of the day, all of that, there's some validity to all of those ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's, there are some redeeming aspects to some ideas more than others. And, and you're just trying to do your best to come up with that outcome. Even if you have to like constantly balance out and debate against your, even uh, debate against even yourself to come up with whatever that outcome is yeah you know so so justin's right when when he says that or at least i feel justin's right when when he says that the dad is someone who's he's he he has moments where he's showing support and sympathy but he also has these moments where that support and sympathy takes another uh, shape right Mm -hmm. uh it's it's instead of being encouraging he's also trying to protect her from uh being hurt by by this experience and there's no way for any parent to really know what the best answer is you just kind of do your best and that's kind of what parenting is about yeah have you uh have you mulled over Justin's interpretation anymore, Drew? Yeah, I I think he makes some good points. I, I don't know if I'm fully convinced that the mother was merely trying to be supportive so that she would live on positively in her daughter's memories. I don't know if I can make that kind of judgment. It's certainly possible. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's something in the story that would um, sway me towards that reading. I'm of, not saying of the there text. is, but I, I do think that there there's room made for those questions. I don't mm-hmm. think that there's evidence uh, pointing one way or the other. I need to see a prequel to this story <laughs> where the mother, like where the story takes place a day before she finds out she has cancer to see just what kind of parent she is in order for me to make that determination. Because if she's like putting cigarettes out on her daughter, then I could go, okay, yeah, she's trying to make up for, she's trying to get some points in the good book before she, she goes. So there we go. Uh, Justin was right. She did a whole lot of meth that day before. She that's why she's dying. Cancer. Yeah. That's why she's dying. And now she's making up for it because Meth will give you cancer. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it 
I find it fascinating that this story led us to discuss what good parenting looks like and just all the different facets to these complicated characters in the family. Yeah. Because I, I feel like the story does have a whole lot of depth within its many panels. Yeah. Just about how we can understand the characters' relationships with each other and also what it is to be a quote-unquote good parent or a good daughter or whatever the case may be. I think the thing that hit me when I read this story was not so much the parenting aspects or their relationships, but I think I was hit by just seeing this slow process of death play out from a terminal illness. Um, and I think seeing it play out in the mother in this pretty subtle fashion, again, like we've been talking a lot about how Tomina's art and storytelling tends to be subtle and uh, done in a way that isn't melodramatic or full of exposition. Like I think when I first started reading the story, there's no real indication that anything is amiss. And it's it's not until, uh, you know, we progress within it that we start to realize what's actually going on. And I like the fact that with the passage of time, we kind of make our own connections into what's going on uh, in their relationships with each other. Because there's, there's like this whole element in the first half of the story uh, uh, when we have the knowledge that the mother is slowly dying from a terminal illness and, and just getting weaker and weaker. But uh, when we get to the point when it's just the father and the daughter and all the stuff that happens in that section of the story, it kind of feels like that's still part of this process where they're, the death of the mother has left this void in in their lives and the way that the father uh, kind of carries on as a parent it's it's almost like he's not maybe not necessarily trying to like take fill in the role of the mother in terms of being supportive or anything but it's almost like he can't handle what he's doing without her. Like he's doing his best, obviously, but like without her, there there is just something missing, and and that's what's pretty sad. But by the end of the story, when we see that the girl, when she gets home, even after a night of complete and utter humiliation. She's still able to put on this brave face for her father, even though <laughs> he knows how horrible it went for her. She doesn't know that he witnessed it, so she she's just able to put on this brave face and like even fix up his hair when he's all messed up. Like he's the one who's struggling with it worse than his daughter, you know? Like he's the one who probably misses his wife more than uh it seems that the daughter misses her mom, you know, like she 
was able maybe she was able to get the encouragement and strength that she needed from her mother to be able to do what she wanted to do and just to you know give it her best shot and even though she failed miserably she's not gonna at least in the scenes that we're privy to she doesn't go home all mopey or disappointed or feel like yeah my dad was right about that that I had no talent or anything like that it was more just you know try to be cheerful and upbeat and even like strangely enough like display display some affection for her father even though like you know he's kind of this irascible guy who's kind of grumpy and, and whatnot but um yeah it's it's complicated because they're 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 still a family and you just see these different facets yeah that's true i'm glad you brought up that last thing because i think the other important um, aspect of that was um um the reader hoping that the dad came to this realization that it's okay to relinquish this role of being the protector Mm -hmm. that the daughter is okay um and you don't need to be you know always watching out for her she's she's grown enough and um yeah i liked how you put that how how you put it where uh, she's been able to gain that confidence and that independence because of the encouragement from her mother and not her father so yeah and like if i think about it the title is a pretty interesting title too because obviously the dying is pointed at the what happens to her mother but you know we talk about killing the word killing in the title it well I, i don't know if you uh did it intentionally earlier albert but when you were describing the story and you mentioned how the girl does the stand-up comedy routine uh on that night after the class and she kills it you know that's pretty much what i see in the use of the word in the title so there's like this combination or juxtaposition of ideas where uh you're you're putting together death and success at, uh next to each other and I guess in a way it, the story kind of makes you think about your perception of what it means to find success even though there's death all around you you know losing a parent or a loved one is a very heavy thing uh but to be able to carry on to even be able to I guess try to make other people laugh there's you know in a way that's already killing it even if you even even if you kind of suck but it it shows that she's been able to not i don't know if you can say move on from her mother's death i don't know if that's something that people can move on from but just continue living life you know and and living life doing something that she wanted to do that the daughter wanted to do i think um the term killing and dying is a is a term in stand-up when something goes well when you're doing well on stage you're killing and when when you're you're dying you're not doing well yeah 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 i don't think it's exclusively to stand up but it's something that uh performance yeah or just yeah performance is probably the right way to put it 
Yeah, it. I like it's. It's a title that works on these multiple levels because she. Yeah. yeah, like when you. Yeah, the the daughter. She was definitely dying in that last scene. Like, <laughs> yeah. It, it was. Uh, it was pretty brutal. Like even just as a, as a reader, I was I was cringing for her. You know. It's painful to to imagine that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. To imagine that playing out in real life. Oof. Uh, yeah, I, I would hate yeah. to be in the room. Yeah, and and it wasn't just that she wasn't getting any laughs because she was basically up there trying to do crowd work where she was just interacting with the audience and they were just not giving her any mileage whatsoever. And on top of that, she just had a bunch of faux pas that she was making with other people, mm-hmm. other performers that were there. And at one point, it even goes to uh semi so so racist place <laughs> when she mistakes or or when she says something that mistakes that makes it sound like she mistook one black guy for another black guy it was a uh, yeah yeah that's pretty brutal that's probably the, one of the worst places you can go on on a stage <laughs> the jokes in this story are great they're amazing even like that joke of her failure of how she fails those are yeah funny those too. those two panels are hilarious when when uh the one black dude that she thought she was addressing he like puts his hand on his head and he's like oh wrong black dude <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah 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 would you guys say that okay since we've applied this litmus test to the other stories, but would you guys say that this is a positive ending or a downbeat ending? I think overall, given the circumstances, it's pretty positive. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, e- even even if the mom was only being nice because she was dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd say so, right? Overall, uh, once you get to the end of it, it, I I think the core idea is that they might be not the most, you know, not the most best-functioning family, but uh, their intentions are pure. Or, okay, maybe not pure in light of what Justin was saying, but (laughs) they love each other, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you know? Uh, I want to be clear that those are just questions. I'm not. I'm not saying that that's a that's a reading that I have or anything like that. Okay. okay. <laughs> wait. That's wait. Fair. Wait. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, one of the other things that uh, I wanted to mention about this story was the layout because he sticks to a 20 panel grid the whole way through (laughs) which is pretty unexpected and unusual choice that's not very common you don't see too many stories commit to 22 to 20 panels a page yeah i guess it's like see all these all these panels with it's it's usually just room for like one or two people like you rarely there are a couple of panels that have uh the three of them and there are a couple of points in the story when 
he uh, elongates or combines some panels, but it's it's still in that grid format. And I feel like it's interesting way of doing this story over, you know, a full issues worth of pages because the it affects the pacing and you get this rhythm of of uh, the passage of time and it's almost like you slowly you slowly see uh, the mother get weaker and weaker as time progresses and it it fits the the way that the art moves you from page to page and and there's even something about just looking at the pages as pages where like if you just opened up to a two-page spread on any of the pages and you just glance at them you just see these familiar figures uh repeatedly it's i don't know i mean i don't know if i have any deeper insights about that but i just think like visually it stands out um like he doesn't do anything super complicated within the panels but just the fact that he uses so many panels to tell the story is pretty unusual it it almost feels like he was doing a challenge for himself to see if he could tell a story like that well here's an idea like for a story that was so focused on gradual changes throughout the book right mm-hmm. it, if if it was this challenge to himself to try to tell a story where it forced us as the reader to really focus on the details it almost it's almost fitting to think of it to think of all these panels uh to 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 think of him doing his story with all these panels because it forces you to pay attention to each panel and kind of pick up this the the clues of what's happening within the story from uh the gradual progression of each panel right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so instead of outright telling us you know having them do uh you know a a four panel grid where they have a discussion about mom's cancer or whatever uh he kind of took the opposite track the the track that you know that really focuses on the idea of comics as sequential storytelling to to give us 20 a 20 grid panel where you have to pay attention to each individual grid and pick up from context exactly all of the subtext that's happening in the course of this story. Yeah. Yeah. It's really well done. It really goes hand in hand with uh, the rhythm, like you said, Drew, Uh, like comedic timing. I I can't imagine how it would work without like this constant grid because comics are very much a medium that uh, represents like both static and temporal art basically or storytelling and it's really leaning in on uh the the constant the constants of time um, mm-hmm. the constant nature of time and how it passes so uh, i thought that was a really good touch as well or a great choice for the story yeah totally you guys have uh any other thoughts on this particular story I think I might say this out of the three stories we read for this episode, I think this one might be my favorite of them. Yeah. 
I think it's yeah. it's the one that I mean they all obviously gave us things to contemplate uh but I I think this one maybe because it was a little denser it it felt like there was more to contemplate and I think on an emotional level it resonated with me uh much deeper too even though some of the characters well the dad he you know he's kind of uh grumpy or unsupportive at times like not necessarily the most likable dad on paper but he had his moments too you know like i i can't say that he was a complete utter worthless or pathetic human being or anything <laughs> like that like he was he was just a normal person trying to do his best in a really tough situation exactly. losing his life exactly. yeah exactly yeah so it's it's, it's uh also not that i have to pref- not that i prefer uh an uplifting kind of ending but i i do think that this ending feels more uplifting than the others and yeah. uh maybe even a lot of other uh stories in optic nerve but but uh you know overall yeah there's this story was just the one that resonated with me the most is it because part of the subject matter is about a single dad yeah i think so (laughs) and you know that's that's one of my wheelhouses man like you tell me a story featuring a single father there's a pretty good chance i'm gonna enjoy that okay okay interesting yeah yeah um i also appreciate the juxtaposition of something that's like unfunny like death uh with just stand-up comedy i think what are you talking about death is hilarious sure sure it is um (laughs) but you know comedy in general how uh how often the best comedy um does deal with uh things that are sad or just like honest in general and Mm -hmm. i think um that really came through in this story yeah yeah for a story that was centered around the idea of improv comedy and stand-up comedy there's a lot of poignancy to it too and like in terms of what it says about about death and family and relationships within the family yeah it's it's all around really impressive storytelling with a lot of depth to it because there's so many layers of of uh meaning that you can extract from it yeah there's this like level of vulnerability that uh engages the reader Mm-hmm. yeah you guys have any final thoughts on it i was uh just mulling over uh what it was about this comic because I, I i do think it's my favorite out of the out of the three as well um yeah i don't maybe for me it is as simple as the fact that it's something that's uplifting but there is something to the idea of this even through all of its uh uh you know its grittiness and its uh, um i guess muck the idea that in spite of the imperfections the 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 strength of the family like perseveres in spite of it there is something mm-hmm. about that that I find more appealing than 
you know, um, you know, the story of a young woman who who can't really get over her her jerky parents or the story of a uh, you know apparently the story of a woman telling her lover that uh someone mistook her for a porn star yeah so, there we go <laughs> <laughs> albert is this a good time to tell people that you've done stand up comedy uh i mean Sure, I guess, but it's you know it's not really a a, a huge I, thing. I, I did end up going on YouTube and and looking up those videos of you doing your stand up routine. Oh, nice. Should how, I how did uh, go? should we drop the links to the video in the description? Uh, I wouldn't. <laughs> I don't want to get fired. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it's not a huge thing. It's it's really just open mic stuff but uh yeah it takes a lot of courage to stand up in front of people and do stuff like that especially strangers here's what i would say um and i do think it's something that's uh relevant to the story which is i think the first lesson that anyone should take away from that sort of a situation is and and like a lot of people do say this is that um the first lesson that you should learn is basically how to die on stage mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, y- you kind of have to develop that thick of a callus on your heart and your soul in order to know what it's like for people to not think you're funny in order to persevere so that you can continue to do what it is that you do when you're on stage because that first time that you do it if you can't survive that yeah like if you can't build the mental like durability to survive that um like you're kind of just not meant for it if that's the case mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so and and i do think that's that's true of you know jesse in uh killing and dying is just Maybe I'm I'm uh, uh, projecting certain ideas on on the story, but yeah, it's the idea that you know th- there's going to be rough things in your life, and to some degree, again, you have to like callous yourself to it in order to survive, because otherwise, what else can you do? You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, how do you guys feel? You guys want to talk about the movie? Yeah, let's talk about Paris, 13th District. Yeah. Uh, Did you guys have any observations? Uh, Like, I feel like, personally, I feel like after reading the comics, there's there's a lot to say. Um, Well, here, here, let's start with this. What are your guys' overall thoughts of the movie? Uh, feel free to speak up, any of you, either of you. Go ahead, Justin. Um, well, I, I think it's helpful to give uh, listeners some context on who participated in this movie. 
so the director, his name is Jacques Odiar, and he's directed movies like A Prophet, Rust and Bone, Deepan, which I think he won the Palme d'Or for. Um, so he's really renowned and has uh, done a variety of different movies, mainly dramas. Um, and he's collaborated with uh, Celine Siama, uh, who is a writer uh, for Paris 13th District, but is a director in her own right, um, a great one. In fact, she's directed Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Tomboy, Girlhood, and Petite Maman. So she's up there too. So with uh, the pedigree on this movie, you'd expect an uh, awesome, awesome movie. I didn't feel that. I thought it was fine. Um, and maybe it's it's a bias that I developed because I have read the comics and I know Tomine's work and I know how far apart um, the stories are from the story presented in the film. Um, but that's not to say that it doesn't have redeeming qualities. I think the film does a great job in developing its characters, albeit like different from the ones presented in Tomine's stories um i think there is a there is a care and sensitivity invested in in these characters and i really do believe that the writers and the director um are huge fans of tomine's work and um honestly wanted to to pay tribute uh with with the best movie that that they could have made so um there's that. Um, mm-hmm. But overall, I, I do think that I felt a little disappointed uh, coming away from this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I think I've said before on our podcast that a lot of times, most times, like 90% of the time, or at least 80% of the time, when it comes to adaptations, I typically prefer the source material yeah like probably about 80 percent of the time and then uh maybe 10 percent of the time i would say that the adaptation is equally as beautiful as the source material but maybe in a different way and then you know the other 10 percent is when the movie or the show is better than the comic but this one definitely falls into that 80% category because it's it's hard to it, it would be hard for me to say that the movie lived up to the spirit of the stories that we just discussed because of the liberties in their interpretation and execution of those stories. They just feel like they could have been they don't feel like they come to the same conclusions emotionally that the original stories did. So in a way, it almost makes me wonder why did they even try to adapt those stories in the first place? And maybe it was just to pay tribute to the comics creator that they all respected, which is totally fine. And I hope Adrian Tomina got paid well for uh, the use of his work in, in this movie. But yeah, overall, I would still rather say, or I would still rather read the the comics. The movie did have, did hold my interest, 
and I I don't think it was a waste of time or anything. So I don't want to sound like I'm too harsh on it. Uh, but just yeah, as a movie, there are certain there were certain things in the movie that didn't work for me, especially since I had already read the comics that inspired it. What about you, Albert? So, uh, I I want to give a little bit of context uh, before I go into my uh, you know my my feelings towards the film. Uh, so I had not read any of the comics prior to to this week for this episode, and uh, you know in preparation for this episode. I I didn't read the comics first. I actually read uh, Amber Sweet first, and then uh, just due to scheduling, I I read maybe like the first couple of pages of Killing and Dying, and then I ended up watching the entirety of the movie before I finished the rest of the comics. So I I, I did go into the movie pretty blind, and I'd, I'd say that in terms of effect, I got more of the effect from the movie uh, before I, I got the full effect of the comics. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, that being the case, I'd have to say that even as I was watching the movie, just based on the one comic that I read that was the source material for the movie, I, I did feel a disparity between what I was seeing on screen and what I had read and to the point where even though I hadn't read two out of the three stories that were the source material for the movie as I was watching it and upon completion of the movie, um, that being the case, once I finished the movie, it, it felt even then that there were ideas and concepts in the movie that didn't seem to sync up with whatever Adrian Tomine was trying to say in his comics. So, yeah, I'd have to agree that the movie fell flat for me as well. Um, I, I I guess I don't know how to how else to put it, but uh, it was just a lot of sex stuff in there, and I you know I'm not a prude or anything, but I, I felt like sex was a very big part of what they were trying to communicate. And I just didn't feel like that aspect of the story played nearly as much a, a role in whatever Adrian Tomine was trying to tell in the story that Adrian Tomine was trying to tell. So mm-hmm. it, it just felt like it, yeah, it felt like a completely different, almost a completely different uh, story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The tone was all different. Yeah. I might, I'd have to think, I, I don't know, if if I watch that movie on its own as a standalone, uh, yeah, I don't know, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I feel great towards it, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, like Justin, it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably, that's probably where I'm going to go with it, it was fine. Yeah, yeah, it was fine. I don't I don't think I wasted my time. I don't think yeah. I'm excited to watch it again anytime soon either. Yeah. Maybe certain scenes. 
Which scenes? Uh, all the sex stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, well, let's let's talk about the film in the context of the three stories that we discussed. Let's so let's let's compare let's compare these things thematically, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's start off with uh, their version of a Hawaiian getaway. Um, like, what did you guys think of what we saw on screen relative to what we had read? I think the thing about Hawaiian Getaway in the movie, well, maybe first of all, we should mention that the way the movie is structured, it actually combines all three of the stories into one into one narrative. Yeah. So yeah. like the characters are all they're all, they, they all kind of like cross over. Yeah, yeah they exist exactly. together. Uh, they which interact is, with one another. Yeah, it's an interesting choice. Like I, I suppose they could have made an anthology where they directly adapted each of the stories, but they chose to do a, do it in a way where all of the stories uh, operated within the same narrative continuity. And I feel like with Hawaiian Getaway, that was the one where they kind of stuck the closest to the source material, although there are some pretty big divergences yeah. especially uh the ending but the 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 bare bones uh, of it were pretty similar cuz it it's one of the main characters of the film is based on the Hillary character i think they renamed her Emily in the movie yeah and yeah so like she starts off working for the call center and has a has a sick old grandmother that she doesn't really visit uh and and then her her roommate you know it's the same thing like they they start off having a lot of sex when he moves in and then he uh kind of moves on from her and yeah she's i don't know resentful about it and uh yeah so it like the way that starts off is pretty similar to the way that the comic starts off but there yeah there was just something about it i think i think i still felt the character was pathetic and i didn't respect her or feel any empathy for her choices i think i was just interested in watching the story play out for its own sake not because i cared about the character yeah what about oh go ahead just i was gonna agree i think in the film, um, Emily's character is much less likable than Hillary's character in the Hawaiian getaway. Mm-hmm. And there is there is less opportunity for her to um, extract that sympathy from the audience. Uh, there are parts where um, Camille, the, the guy who uh, is supposed to represent Luke, you know, treats her like garbage. And you do feel for her in that respect. But... She treats him like garbage, too. Exactly. She treats him like garbage. She insults uh, his girlfriend. She she does things that um, um, stem from her her insecurities and selfishness, um, which is is hard to defend. 
Um, there are conversations that she has with her mother on the phone that mirror what is had on the in the in the stories, uh, uh, Hawaiian getaway, but um, that just surrounded by all these other things and this weird connective tissue that the filmmakers made to to provide continuity within the narrative is just it just kind of created this inability to be more empathetic towards her character. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. On top of all that, the relationships were not as fully developed as the characters were. So uh, the the turnaround uh, for um, Camille to and, and his supposed attraction to Emily that just didn't feel warranted to me. Um, I think there's all these weird choices that could have been avoided if they didn't force themselves to to connect Amber Sweet to uh, Hawaiian Getaway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. What are your thoughts, I, Albert? I do agree that they cut out a lot of uh, content that would have helped to give us more of an insight into uh, Emily's background, right? So I was going to ask you guys, did you think, although we see glimpses of the mother and her interaction with uh, Emily throughout the movie, like, did you get the same impression from those interactions as you did of the... Uh, interactions between Helen and her mother in the comics? Like, did she seem as much of a shrew, I guess? Not really to me. I mean, I could see where they were trying to go in the same direction as the mother in the comic, but... If I hadn't read the comic, I wouldn't have realized that she was as harsh as she was supposed to be you know yeah yeah and then like the way the movie is the way that they write uh the emily character it just feels like she's even worse because she's she's petty and insecure she's petty (laughs) insecure she's uh she's always going out to these raves or whatever like i don't know anything about that kind of lifestyle but just watching it on the screen it definitely didn't appeal to me or seem cool at all and i just thought like doing stuff like that uh you know trying to trying to uh lose herself or lose her or escape from her problems through through partying that's always something that i find pretty pathetic um and then like the stuff that she was doing the way that she treated her grandma in in the movie was even worse too because she yeah. she like hired this or not she was renting out a room in her in her apartment but she said that she would knock off some of the rent money if the person would go visit her grandma who has alzheimer's and just pretend to be her you know like that's yeah. that's pretty messed up man i don't yeah. i don't respect that and and it it makes like it all adds up to make her just thoroughly unlikable and like yeah. on top of that with with the pettiness and and stuff yeah it like i said earlier uh she, she was a character that i i definitely didn't care for but i was 
just interested in seeing the story play out not yeah. i wasn't invested in in like seeing her change or or i wasn't rooting for her i was just watching um experiencing the story yeah the other detail was that the apartment that she lived in was her grandmother's apartment and which wasn't like explained in the in the the comic um which is another reason why you you'd hate her because she's she's just bumming off her grandma and yeah. she has no ambitions to to make her make her whole at all like i think it's another mm-hmm. another reason why she uh why i, I interpret her, her as uh, being really self-centered yeah yeah extremely self-centered yeah like the other thing that they cut out and you know i think this could have been an effective scene for just her character development but that scene we mentioned uh, earlier where her story ends on this note where she looks at you know she tells the story about how she gets sunburned and you know she looks at that suitcase like that like taking that out does feel like it takes there's no hawaiian getaway yeah right it takes a lot of the whatever's at the core of her story and yeah uh, i i just it 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 didn't feel like it was a story that was too focused on on the idea of if we were to compare it to the themes that we discussed earlier tonight uh, it, it just doesn't feel like it's a story that focuses on the idea of her being in this place in her life where she's just not sure what she wants to do, right? It's, it, I don't know. Uh, like, I, I, I'd have to think about it some more, but I'm not in, even entirely sure what the, what the crux of her arc was. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I couldn't really explain it either because it f- just feels like she's a she starts off as a pretty selfish, self-centered person, and then yeah. uh, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I don't really that. see what changes with her, but she yeah. just ends up happy because uh, the guy that Camille, uh, who she was in love with from the beginning, ends up deciding that he wants to commit to her, and I don't yeah. really know why he decided to do that unless he just had no other prospects. <laughs> Yeah, it seemed like he just settled for some reason. Yeah. There was no arc. There was no growth in her character. She just got bailed out at the end. Yeah. I was also going to mention... Jeez, I forgot what I was going to say. It'll come back to me, but anyways. Were you going to say something about Emily or one of the other stories? I was going to say something about Emily, but it's on the tip of my brain, but I, I can't come up with what it was at at this moment but we can move on to one of the other stories or did you guys want to talk on it some more well sticking with emily uh, the way that the movie ends when uh camille decides to uh take her up on her offer and commit to her yeah like that ending too i I think it runs counter to the the feeling in the comic you know like the comic is very evocative of these wistful emotions and just like a sense of loss and 
longing and uncertainty and confusion but by having the ending that they did in the movie it the movie ending just makes it feel like everything is okay and it's a yeah. you know a happy ending she's finally got her true love and they're together and you know they can ride off into the sunset and to the funeral <laughs> you know yeah um yeah it it just feels weird to me knowing that the story that it's based on doesn't Didn't, have any sense yeah. of that kind of happiness to it yeah there's something peculiar about the last scene of the movie especially when you compare it to the source material to it 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 ends with her going to the funeral and the the previous scene before she she has this conversation with uh what's his name camille Mm -hmm. she has that conversation with him and she it it almost feels like a rom-com or something where she goes (laughs) well if you're gonna be there uh then then you're you're committed committed yeah and if if you're not then i don't expect to see you ever again yep you know it's almost as cliche as the the chase the the chase to the airport scene in like a rom-com right (laughs) but then it's definitely setting that up yeah, and then the scene ends with her waiting in her uh, grandma's apartment. Uh, you know where, where you're where you're wondering will they won't they? You know, and the guy calls, and you know they they kind of have uh, a flirty interaction before he screams out, "I love you!" You know, and <laughs> yes, and she, you know, and it ends, and it's just that does not feel like a true. It doesn't feel like it captures the spirit of whatever he was writing, like, at all. Yeah. And then then it slowly zooms into the phone, which I can guess the reference uh, of what the reference is. It's to, you know, uh, the call center job, the the prank calls on the phone, things like that, or calling the radio DJ. But none of that was in the movie, so that felt a little weird and unwarranted, too. Yeah. I, I I do remember what I was going to say earlier, though. Um, we in uh, earlier in the episode we were talking about how a lot of a lot of uh, Adrian Tumene's stories seem to revolve around the idea that again these are young people, you know, slackers or or yeah, young slackers who are just kind of doing things making mistakes in their lives and it's it's not huge melodrama but it feels true to real life where um you know people go out into the world in their 20s and they make they make whatever decisions they make and that includes bad relationship decisions or bad career decisions or bad friendship decisions whatever right like do you think that that concept, it, if we were to be generous with this film, do you think that's one interpretation of this where these people aren't likable, but that's just kind of maybe that's the one area where it tries to be true to an Adrian Tomine comic in that they're not likable and they make terrible decisions, but hey, that's just 
the season of their life that they're in. It's possible. I, th- I think that the characters in the movie tend to be portrayed as, well, I guess you said it yourself earlier, but it was it's like a very sexual movie. And some of Tomine's comics have sex sexual content in them but i don't think that any of them like reach the the uh amount that the movie has like uh-huh. it like this movie felt like the characters the way that they dealt with the frustrations in life or or disappointment was to you know go to a party pop some molly and find someone to bang you know yeah. <laughs> like to it, hump their problems away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, maybe that maybe that is realistic. Maybe that's what people do. Um but to tell a story about that, I don't know if that's like to maybe for me that's just not really the kind of stories that that like pull in my empathy or 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 evoke emotions other than uh revulsion. Cause I yeah I just think that's a horrible idea I would never want to do that. <laughs> There's a part of me that also, and maybe I just don't get it, but there's a part of me that doesn't really see how that solves any of their problems. <laughs> I, I guess it just feels sort of pointless. Well, not pointless, but you know, it just feels in, in the grand scheme of 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 how the story is supposed to resolve itself it, it, it i fail to see like what it does other than uh, a, a temporary release from their problems yeah yeah and there there were there was one weird scene too that kind of uh made me scratch my head but it was kind of towards the later part of the movie and it's when emily is working at the restaurant at one point she she's like on some dating app right and she yeah. gets connection with somebody so she tells her coworker she's going to do an errand leaves the restaurant sees the dude and they have sex and then she goes back to the restaurant and when she goes goes back into the restaurant she's like dancing uh just like doing this weird dance through the restaurant while everybody's looking at her and clapping like <laughs> i need someone to explain that to me man i need a cinephile to break down that scene for me and explain to me what I was looking at. I think that's just her internal manifestation of the euphoria she was feeling from whatever interaction she just had. From the sexual high? <laughs> it yeah. made her decide to yeah. dance like a fairy through a, yeah. a Chinese restaurant? I mean, yeah. I don't know if you feel that way or if you saw it that way, Jess. No, I think... Well, I can't really explain it, but I I would point out that that's like a stark contrast from uh, the what we talked about earlier about restraint and subtlety. Yeah. Um, and there's several scenes where it just gets so exaggerated and just like takes takes the viewer kind of out of it. Um, yeah. Even though it's in you know black and white and um, it's. It, that that aesthetic does ground the movie a little bit more but there are certain parts of it where it just like stands out as really odd actually um i would say that sex is sort of like that connective tissue 
trying to marry the the stories um, of uh, Hawaiian Getaway and um, not killing and dying because that was just like one scene basically. Yeah. Um, but uh, and Amber Sweet, and I think what they were attempting to do was to communicate how um, these people, these young people, are in search for um, pleasure and they find it through sex uh, but what they really lack and what they really need is companionship um, and sometimes that may be sex may be the path towards companionship like we see uh, with um, Nora Nora's character who who is like the amber sweet character um, and uh, or self-discovery and sometimes it's it's a hindrance right it's a uh, it just gets in the way like oh, i'm just looking for something casual i'm not look, really looking for a companion but um you actually are you're just you're just you're just too prideful um, and we kind of see that dynamic between camille and emily so i think that's what they were trying to get at but i also think that was ultimately unsuccessful yeah yeah maybe at best i would say it was clumsily handled yeah or or handled in a way that that didn't necessarily feel like it was the most mature way to handle it. Yeah. Like listening to you talk about it, I do I do think you you're you're you've struck on something with the idea that it it does feel like the sex itself seems to be the the pathway out for all of these characters, right? And yeah, I just don't. Again, I I don't feel that that's true to any of the things that they were going over in in any of the three stories. Even oddly enough, something like Amber Sweet, which mm-hmm. involves a porn star, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, if you guys have anything. Uh, Anything else you want to mention about uh, 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 Hawaiian Getaway? We can talk about uh, what's it called? We can talk about killing and dying a little bit as it was portrayed on the film. Yeah, that was the one where I don't think they did a whole lot. They did not do it justice. Adaptation. <laughs> yeah, it was really just Camille's sister. She yeah. had the stutter, and then you know their mother had passed away uh, before the start of the movie. Yeah. And the sister, yeah, wanted to to do stand-up stuff, and he wasn't super, Camille was the character who wasn't super supportive of that. Yeah. And, yeah. That was it? it, it, That was pretty much it. Like, she showed up in a couple of scenes. Uh, I guess the one scene she had at the, near the end of the movie when she, there was a scene where she told the joke about uh, public speaking and uh, being at a funeral. Like that was something that was straight from the comic. But yeah, other than that, it it was a uh, pretty minimal. It was more. Of, it felt more like an homage, you know. It wasn't yeah. really an adaptation of the story. Yeah. It, it might like as well a... have been a cameo from with Adrian Tomine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it felt like a a tool or an afterthought used to 
develop Camille's character when they had no other material because Lloyd, I think that's his name, or Sam weren't really fleshed out. So they're like, let's let's take this other story and try to flesh Camille's yeah. character out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's for a story that the three of us seem to have some fondness for. Uh, it 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 feels uh, well not wrong but it for that much time to be dedicated for it to it and to say that that's the adaptation of it well no that does feel wrong you know it just feels <laughs> <laughs> i like how you can talk yourself out of what you initially said <laughs> sometimes i gotta really think about it but oh. yeah it, it just like i I think what we read in Killing and Dying just showed how much more material there was to the point where they could have just taken Killing and Dying and that could have been its own movie in and of itself without having to combine it with these other two. Totally. Just 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 based on the thematic content of it, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think we all agree that each of these stories could have been their own yeah, movie. That's yeah, that's true. I don't that's think true. that. Yeah. Yeah, but, I will say that uh, with the adaptation of Killing and Dying um, serving its only purpose as a development tool for Camille, I think it was even less than that. I think it was about Camille saving the cat because up until that point, he was really, there's no redeeming qualities for him other than like, okay, he's a teacher. He he teaches, that's a noble profession, whatever. Um, whatever. <laughs> But after after that, like I'm there, learning there's... so much about you tonight, Jess. <laughs> you know what I mean. But after that, there's like nothing else that you could like about him, right? He was Until... a pretty unlikable character. He had nice hair. Yeah, sure. Yeah. He's a good-looking cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then Wait. we're we're supposed to pivot into um, believing that oh, he's actually a good guy with with this killing yeah. and dying story and then okay maybe he does does deserve love and he should go after uh emily again or he's good enough for nora right so i think that's why it was used but also yeah that it didn't make any sense wait remind me what was the cat in the movie what cat did he save oh no that's just a term to to uh, redeem oh. a character that's Oh, okay, so there wasn't an actual like... cat no. that he saved. Okay, I found that confusing. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> I like how you took him literally there. That was great. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, yeah, so... Okay, so... That's uh, Killing and Dying as as we, we saw it on, on screen. I, I, I guess we... Don't really have much else to say on killing and dying, is that right? Yeah, it was kind of a nothing burger in the context of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, then I guess it's okay for us to move on to the Amber Sweet portion of mm-hmm. the story. And uh Yeah, and that's another story where they introduce uh this other character, Nora, that you mentioned earlier. And at first she's just I I'd say like uh, a Hawaiian getaway, it's at least on the surface, it has a lot of the same trappings as as the story, but 
ultimately at the end of it uh, I, I do think it misses the point too uh well now that i'm taking into consideration what justin had to say about it it might not even beat the points that i thought that it made <laughs> so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it missed the point it missed the boat it missed the train it's yeah. like yeah it missed everything yeah I don't know what that story was. I think uh, what the filmmaker, how the filmmakers interpreted it and tried to um, apply it in this film was was uh, was um, was wrong. But uh, for for their perspective, and even without the context of the the movie, it it could have been fine. Uh, but I do think centering a story around uh, a celebration of discovering your sexuality is a good one. I just thought it was executed poorly, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things that have worthwhile concepts, but yeah, the, if the execution falls on its face, then that that's just painful. Yeah. Right. And so we were talking about um, how some of the aspects of uh, Tomine's Amber Suite were Im- implausible, right? So one of the questions I had earlier was, uh, wouldn't this unnamed character uh, in the movie's case, Nora, wouldn't this woman take more steps to distance herself from um, Amber Sweet, of, or from people recognizing her as that? Wouldn't she go out of her way to prove the point that she is not this person? And throughout the entire story she she really didn't which was really strange because in this interpretation they're they're taking uh it word for word like literally that there is another person named amber sweet that doesn't even really look like her say for the wig yeah and yeah um, like that's another thing the only reason that nora looked like amber sweet was because she bought a wig and that wig <laughs> made her look like the porn star yeah yeah and and you kind of see why they're using black and white uh for i'm sure there's other reasons maybe it's to match the aesthetic of like a comic book hawaiian getaway in particular but it's also used to hide the fact that these people don't look the same Mm -hmm. um and that that was really strange like she doesn't even have tattoos on her so like what when that be like the first thing you point out like she was she didn't even have her hairstyle like so i i, I really don't understand could i she could be mistaken. could i play devil's advocate on this though sure like could it be one of those one of those stories where that particular detail isn't necessarily the point where where it's kind of like the idea of a rumor where once it's out there it almost doesn't matter that this person is refuting it because once yeah. once people get it once people get that perception of a person as as a certain thing especially in like the internet age it's it's almost as devastating to that person as it's almost as devastating to them as as if it were the truth, right? Because we've seen, you know, 
not not to like go off the reservation in terms of like film theory or whatever but you know even even in the age of of fake news and all that where uh you know we have people like the sandy hook shooters uh where you know people look at that and it's obviously there's stuff obviously that's crazy that are people that people are saying but they look at that and it doesn't even it almost doesn't even matter that you have all this evidence to prove that the Sandy Hook shooting did happen, but the fact that these people want to believe it and that they will continue to look for different ways to justify that reality, that's almost as 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 bad as... Well, it's not as bad as it actually happening, but like it's the power of that perception that yeah. allows the the devastation to be wrought on this person's life right Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah your point is taken i think that's a great point um and thanks for reminding me how messed up the world is um but i think oh that's what i was put on this earth to do is to (laughs) constantly remind people that other people are terrible um (laughs) yeah thanks uh but i think the fact that Nora didn't even try to dispute it at all seems a little unrealistic. Like the Sandy Hook parents, I mean, they're they're still fighting, right? So I think it's it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Huh. She kind of just took all the insults and the insinuations and then left the school so she could get that job at the real estate company and meet Camille. Yeah. So you don't think there's a chance that that stuff happened off, off camera where, you know, where in spite of any, uh, protests that she might have had, it, it really didn't matter. Like, is that something that you have that you feel like you had to have seen in order for that to be believable? I don't know if I had to have seen it, but it would have been it would have been uh, smart for the filmmakers to include that to draw more sympathy. Like, I wouldn't there there's. I don't know if there was a deliberate choice not to include that in the movie, is what I'm saying. I think it was just, like, missed. I don't think mm. they, they thought about it at all. Okay. Yeah. Cause there was one scene where she punched her classmate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was but, funny. But that, yeah. that I mean, she she then she didn't even dispute it. She was just getting revenge. So, yeah. 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 At that point, she was already working in the real estate company. Yeah. Yeah. I think when I was watching it, I was under the assumption that she had already told people the truth, but, you know, it was already out there. 
So we were just watching the repercussions of it all, but mm-hmm. maybe that's just me. I remember that one scene in uh, the lecture hall where she's speaking and all these phones light up. Do you remember that scene? Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. another example of like this gross exaggeration or this like artistic liberty that the filmmakers uh, took that Tomine would never do or like not in my mind. Because when I saw that scene in the movie, I thought it was a dream sequence. Yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah, it, it's so over the top. Uh, uh. It's it's not subtle at all. And one of the things that we were saying about the comics is how well they d- execute understatement and subtlety. And that scene is the total opposite. Yeah. What did you think about how Nora's story played out with Amber Sweet becoming friends with her? And then and the way that their arc ended was how they met in person and I guess basically fell in love with each other. Yeah. Go ahead, Albert. No, I was was just talking aloud, but uh, it wasn't anything substantive. Go ahead. I mean, it's it's an obvious metaphor about Nora finally being able to love herself or true self or embrace the sexuality that um she she has just discovered so i yeah that's cool i guess but other than that i didn't really (laughs) i don't know like you know that's cool that's cool (laughs) um but other than that i just i don't know it didn't fit with i mean obviously i'm biased because i really like amber sweet uh in um in killing and dying so um and i i really think that they misinterpreted what what was what it was trying to say and they just went off on a tangent which which is fine i think they found something that's also uh really worthy of exploring but i also think that it was kind of easy and on the nose and uh wasn't very interesting yeah, and the another thing that I was just reminded of while you were talking is how when they did meet, there was a melodramatic scene when Nora faints or collapses yeah. or something. Yeah, like that. That was another thing that made me scratch my head. Like it, it's right up there with uh, all the phones lighting up or with Emily dancing through the restaurant. I was just like, wait, why did? Why did she faint? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a uh, it's a pretty melodramatic choice. Yeah, I mean, I thought that the scene would have worked just fine if she hadn't fainted. Like now that I think about it, I I really don't It's an action that definitely takes you out of the moment because mm-hmm. exactly, it's like you said, once that happened, it's like wait, was something wrong with her? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, did did she have a a stroke or a tumor or something that we didn't know yeah. about? It's not a tumor. It's <laughs> <laughs> not a tumor. Uh, yeah, and I don't know. Like, I think 
that ending, especially when you compare it against the the other ending, the one that I thought was being played out in the comic, which was, you know, her um, meeting Amber Sweet and then having this catharsis of finally letting that go. Like, you know, to for them to turn that into... Hey, they they they're actually in love with each other. Like I don't know, there was something about that that, again, it just felt like it missed the the point of whatever was in the comic. And maybe I'm being a stickler about it uh, in this no, particular case. No, I don't think but, so. It, it's really two totally different stories. Yeah, yeah. You, when if you change the ending of something that drastically, it's a different story. Yeah, I mean, I and again, like I'm not against the idea of exploring a story or, or of reading a story that's about like sexual discovery or anything like that. I, I, I don't really have any problem with that, but it's just that in this particular case, it just deviated so, so far from, um, you know, what Tomina had put down that. Yeah, it, it just, it feels too different for me to really be able to appreciate it on the same level. Yeah. It's, it's like having, uh, making a Superman movie where Superman kills somebody. Oh wait, they did that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I people think, love it. <laughs> Go ahead. I think I would have um, appreciated the film much more if they took the, Emily and Camille stuff out of it, concentrated on Nora Amber Sweet stuff, and didn't say that it was Amber Sweet. Didn't say that it was inspired by Amber Sweet. That would have been an all right movie, like better than what I think this movie is. But since that they, they try to cram so much of that stuff in there, and how disparate these points are and these concepts are and didn't really like meld them together and, and except for just like having a bunch of sex scenes like i i don't yeah i, I didn't see how that all came together and um i think that was the the biggest problem of the movie do you think camille was necessary for nora and amber sweet's story or would that work if you just took him out entirely that's true i just realized he plays a much bigger part than his counterpart in the comic does. <laughs> mm-hmm. huh. For for the movie to connect the two stories, he's the only thing that connects them. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, he's, if he's they pretty were doing essential a, there. If, so if they were doing a story like what you just proposed, they don't need a character like Camille in no. the Nora story. They don't. They do need a love interest where, like in the Amber Sweet story, like she had three different love interests or something like that, where mm-hmm. uh, um, it highlights the the repercussions of um, that life choice of becoming a porn star or being mistaken for one and suffering those consequences. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I would imagine characters like Camille being there but nowhere as prominent yeah I kind of wish that they had just made an anthology movie where they did three separate 
short films based on each of the stories that they liked to, that they picked. I think I would have been fine with something like that. It trying to connect everything just, yeah. And those connections, those forced connections, as well as the melodramatic moments, they kind of work against the effectiveness of the overall film. Yeah. Maybe if they had just, yeah, I think if they didn't say that they were inspired by those Tomina comics, then I don't think I would have noticed the things, a lot of the things that we just talked about. I mean, minus the melodramatic moments, but yeah, it just feels like most of the problems that we have with the movie are because we are familiar with the comics. Yeah, you can't help. But compare the two of them, because it's yeah. just so glaring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just want to reiterate that even without the context of the comics, I don't think I would have. I I was still thought that this movie was fine or just okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because of how the puzzle pieces don't really fit together. Yeah, you're right. But. Uh, that's not to say it doesn't have redeeming qualities. Um, like I said earlier, I do think that the filmmakers have a fondness for um, Tomine's work and the characters. And I think that does show and shine through of how much they're trying to invest in develop- developing them or how much, um, yeah, how much care they, they put into um, trying to be faithful, even though that their interpretations aren't fully on point. A lot mm-hmm. of the lines are lifted from the comics. Yeah. Um, the spirit of Emily's character tries to match Hillary's, even though that there's there's a few details there that make her um, a very much more unre- uh, unlikable character. So I do think that there 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 is this effort that the filmmakers had and this um, reverence for Tomini's work that did come through in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Do you guys have any other final thoughts about anything that we discussed? No, I, I think uh, we've been pretty thorough about our thoughts on the movie and uh well okay I, I i guess i can put this out there but if you guys have any recommendations of a movie or comic that's similar or or something that crossed your mind as you were watching this uh you're you're you know we can put that out there um you know just as something to offer up to the listeners one thing that I did think of is one of uh, Tomina's longer works, Shortcomings. That's uh-huh. that's actually going to be uh, adapted into a movie also in the future. Oh. Uh, yeah, nice. last year they they announced that uh, it's in development with Randall Park directing, you know, oh. Asian Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agent Jimmy Woo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. nice. Yeah. 
So hey, good hopefully for, that that oh. comes through. That could yeah. be good. Yeah. Um, Justin. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that uh, Tomine's latest book, um, the the loneliness of the, the long distance of the cartoonist. Long cartoonist, is also being adapted, but into a TV show, and I think it's by A twenty four. So looking forward to that one. Oh, well. that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, something that, that we—that's a really good comic. Yeah, yeah. Something that we mentioned before recording was uh, Ghost World, um, as a movie and a book. Yeah. And mm-hmm. how uh, how we thought it was faithful to to the book. Yeah. Um, and both were pretty good in their own right. So. Yeah. I do think that Daniel Klaus as a writer is someone who who's spiritually similar to spiritually and tonally similar to uh what adrian tomine does and as an example of a movie adaptation of that kind of a comic book work i do think that the ghost world movie uh was probably more faithful and more true to to that comic than uh, Paris 13th District was to Adrian Tomine's three stories here. Yeah. Speaking of Dan Klaus, there was also Wilson. I thought that movie was pretty... Oh, yeah. It was a pretty good adaptation of one of his comics, too. That was pretty good. I forgot about that. That one was pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Have you seen that one, Justin? I don't think I have. No. Woody Harrelson, man. Yeah. Let's check that out. Yeah. yeah. I was gonna also mention um, Yoshihiro Tatsumi, mm. which actually there's a dedication um, uh, in Killing and Dying that precedes uh, Intruders, which is the last story in in the book, I believe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Tatsumi's work is great. Um, he has this alternative manga style. Um, What's the term again, Drew? Gekiga. Gekiga. Yeah. yeah. And um, if you like Tomini's work, um, but with a, a little bit of a, a darker flair, then I think Tatsumi's work would be good to check out. Yeah. And I I do remember that Adrian Tomine was pretty instrumental in getting Drawn and Quarterly to... Uh, do new translations and and bring over Tatsumi's work to English speaking yeah, right. audiences. Like if you look at some of the earlier books, uh, some of the earlier Tatsumi collections that Drawn and Quarterly did, uh, there's some interviews in the in the book with Tomine talking about his love for Tatsumi. I could definitely see Tatsumi as an influence on him. Those are great comics. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well. If you guys have uh, anything that you'd like to ask us about, uh, you know, any of the comics that we discussed today or the movie, if you have any questions or comments, you can hit us up at, uh, you know, between the gutters podcast at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on our Instagram at between the gutters. Uh, you can tweet at us, uh, same name. If you want to look for Justin, you know, hit him up on the wow account, you know, w.a. H dot W. Is that right? That's right. You got yeah. it. 
So, uh, you know, feel free to hit any of us, uh, any of us up with, uh, you know, any comments or questions. Uh, if you could rate the podcast, that'd be great for us, uh, you know, on whatever platform you're listening to us on and, uh, you know, share and like and all that good stuff. Thanks for coming on the show again, Justin. We appreciate having you as always. Thanks for your insights on the stories that we read today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Peace out. Bye, guys.